Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Did First Lady Jill Biden get so excited about the women's basketball championship game, she put her foot in her mouth. As she celebrated LSU's victory over Iowa, Dr. Jill suggested both teams come to the White House. So I know we'll have the champions come to um, to the White House. We always do. So, you know, we'll have LSU come. But you know what? I'm going to tell Joe, I think Iowa should come too because they played such a good game. America does not like the braggadocious, boisterous, authentically arrogant black athlete. And whether you're a man or a woman, there are certain things that are going to set off the criticism alarms. And that is the black athlete that it doesn't just act like, oh my God, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. The black athlete that will say, I just kicked your ass and I'm going to revel in it. And it is especially galling to folks when they're doing that to a white athlete whose ass they just kicked. And it, I understand there are many, many people, some of whom love this show, and to those people I apologize, they are more bothered by the discussions of race than they are by actual racism. But the reaction this young woman received was racist. Yeah. Flat. Come on, man. They counted us out. They always count us out. And I want to say this like... I think it's because of how we are and how we express ourselves, our personalities, you know what I'm saying? And I just want to say this right here, like, to all the young black girls that's out here, express yourself on the court, off the court, be you, be you. You want to be Angel Reese, be Angel Reese. If you want to be, you know what I'm saying, like, be you, be expressive. You know what I'm saying? They don't like us because we expressive, but, like, they call it unclassy for other people, they'll call it Times other coaches, your colleagues have sitting in that spot and talked about you all being bullies. What's the truth about your team? The truth about our team, okay? It's a good question. Okay. Um, we're not bar fighters. We're not thugs. We're not monkeys. We're not street fighters. Um, this team exemplifies how you need to approach basketball on the court and off the court. And I do think that I do think that that's sometimes brought into the game, and it and it and it hurts. Okay. Um, and I do think that. Some of uh, I'm gonna say it because I said I was gonna say it, whether we lost or whether we won. Some of the people in the media, when you're gathering in public, you're saying things about our team, and you're being heard, and it's being brought back to me. Okay, and these are the people that write nationally for our for our sport. So you can you cannot like our team. Okay, you cannot like me, um, but when you say things that you probably should be saying um, in your home, on the phone, or texting, out in public, and you're being heard, 
and you are a national writer for our sport, it just confirms, just confirms what, what we already know. So watch what you say when you're in public and you're talking about my team in particular. The Cows, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Sunday, Easter Sunday, so I am told, April 9, 2023, so I have been told. The audio segment that we heard uh, so let's see if I can get this in order we heard Dr. Jill Biden first lady of the United States uh, talking about she wanted the LSU women's basketball team national champions crowned a week ago today she wanted both their team and the University of Iowa's women's basketball team which lost in that championship game she wanted them both to come to the White House which was just another layer on a very controversial week, which should have just been, hey, celebrating LSU and record viewership for the NCAA championship game for the women's uh, and growing the sport and all of that. Nope. Instead of all that, spent the week talking about uppity black athletes, classless black athletes, and white victims in all of this. That's what we spent the week talking about. So we heard First Lady Jill Biden, white woman, inviting both teams, which got walked back. And lots of people were outraged because they generally don't invite the losers to the White House. We then heard from Nick Wright, white man, sports analyst, saying that many people are more upset about talk about racism than the actual practice of racism and then indicting all of this kerfuffle that we've had for seven days about a black player, Angel Reese, for LSU doing some trash talk at a white female player for the University of Iowa during the closing moments of the championship game. She put her hand over her face like, you can't see me. We got the ring. We won. We won. Folks were outraged. Spent the past week being outraged about all of this. Nick Wright said he thinks this is racism. Next, we heard from one of Angel Reese's LSU championship teammates, Flage Johnson. I think she won freshman of the year down in the Southeastern Conference. But that was her saying specifically, hey, to the young black girls, be yourself. They don't like it. We're emotional, uppity even. Go out and just be you. If you're angry, be angry. If you're happy, be happy. And then last, we and before I can even give the last name, just to give context for who the last voice was, the greatest basketball player in the history of the University of Virginia, no disrespect to Ralph Sampson. Pride of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, one of the very few people in the world to win a gold medal as a basketball player and a basketball coach 
also one of the few people in the world played in the Final Four and coached in the NCAA Final Four. Spectacular in the Basketball Hall of Fame. The great Dawn Staley. That was the last person that you heard being asked about her team, the South Carolina Gamecocks women's basketball team. Defending champs, I may add, they lost in the Final Four to the University of Iowa and were undefeated up to that point. Extraordinary success of Dawn Staley. She has to be asked about your team. People say they're bullies. And Dawn Staley, Basketball Hall of Famer, has to say, we are not monkeys. We're not thugs. We're not bar fighters. Dawn Staley has to say that about her team of black female athletes. Hmm. That's been most of the chit chat for the past seven days. Not just congratulations to LSU, great job, all that. No, 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 no. Seven days of that. Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Our guest for today's program, I thought it would be great. Let's see if we could get someone who's right there, kind of sitting in the midst of all of this, who could kind of give us what have they been saying at one of these institutes? What have they been talking about? How have they been processing all this? Do they feel like uh, Caitlin Clark, white woman basketball player at University of Iowa? What do they think? You know, she's been a victim of all this. They think this is racism and what have you. Our guest for today, associate professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Iowa. He's written a number of reports uh, in NCAA basketball, racism, the coverage of these events, even Luther Vandross, who we heard softly in the background to today's program. What a hoot. So thankful to have him on the program joining us live. Dr. Thomas P. Oates. Dr. Oates, let's see. Do we have you, sir? Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Easter Sunday with us. Uh, For folks, this might be their first time hearing about you and the work that you do. If you don't mind giving us kind of a brief intro, uh, what kind of research you do out there at the University of Iowa. My work is focused on contemporary sports, mostly in the United States, although I've done some some work on contemporary sports in Europe. I am a media scholar, so I'm interested in how um, media representation, media ownership, promotion, brand identity, all those kinds of things um, tie into shaping how we experience sports as media audiences. I've also written a bunch about uh, fandom, sports fandom as well. So um, uh, I wrote a book on football, edited another book on the NFL, um, and working on a book on uh, playground basketball right now. 
um, and have written a few articles recently on that topic. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, for it's on your your faculty page. Do you want to tell folks uh, how you got involved in sports based on your childhood experience? Sure. Um, my parents were not much into sports, but I, for some reason, was it really captured my imagination from a pretty young age. Um, so I would be, you know, watching World Series games or the National Championship game in our living room after everyone else had gone to bed and <laughs> um, sometimes being delighted with the outcome and sometimes heartbroken. You know how it is. But um, uh, my dad was also an academic. I'm an academic Nepo baby. Um, and uh, so Sometimes I would uh, spend time in the library where uh, he worked, um, and I would sort of bounce back and forth between the the gym and uh, where I would shoot some hoops. And then um, when I got tired of that, go to the air-conditioned library and thumb through the old Sports Illustrated that were bound in the in the periodical section. Um, and I was so I was fascinated with sports. I kind of figured out early on that I was not a great athlete, but um, I was really interested in the kind of storytelling around sports, the true stories that people tell about the games and the athletes. Um, But I started to notice pretty early on how sort of patterned those stories could be. Um, This is, you know, the 1980s and 90s. um, And anyone who grew up in that time would probably remember that the sort of commentary surrounding big time sports, just just sort of casual commentary, was kind of shockingly racist from the point of view of today. Um, and you know, I, I tended to notice those things because uh, my favorite team in college basketball was Georgetown, um, and Georgetown, of course, were a kind of controversial team throughout the 80s and 90s, uh, a very popular team in some ways, but a very unpopular team in other sectors and kind of even a hated team by by some folks. And so, you know, I would notice the difference between how the athletes from Georgetown were talked about and the athletes from Duke, for example, and sort of wonder about what that difference was was due to, I mean, um, and so when I had a chance to study those things, um, I turned my attention to sports commentary, sports writing, sports narratives, um, to try to understand something about those patterns that I was thinking about and sort of noticing, but not really thinking about it in a systematic way. Thank and that you. carried me through graduate school and then, um, here I am doing the same thing 20 years later. <laughs> Bravo. Thank you so much for the uh, comprehensive answer. I will pause just to put some respect on the name of the late legend, John Thompson, put Georgetown mm-hmm. on the buddy. Talk about victim of white supremacy, George Thompson who was recognized, oh my goodness, even Charles Barkley of all people stopped to do the same thing, same thing, Hall of Famer Charles Barkley, to say, man, John Thompson, a legacy of producing great black 
males, not great black basketball players, great black males. Jen might even have something to do with why they would be such a hated team, a team of mm-hmm. black dudes with a black coach at a time when that was not very common in college basketball. Buddy, even connect mm-hmm. that all the way through now. I just said the great Don Staley mm-hmm. had to say in 2023 about black females, we're not monkeys. I've heard John Thompson have to tell a number of stories about racism. He did coach Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, where he had to say the same thing. We are not mm-hmm. monkeys. We are not thugs and had to stop a whole game because they had bananas and were calling Allen Iverson a convict. That's not the 80s, but I mean. Mm-hmm. Happened with Ewing, too, though, in the <laughs> 80s. Yeah. Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, run the whole list. I'm sure he's got decades worth of stories. The great John Thompson, victim of white supremacy, just passed away not that long ago. Uh, for folks, guess if they didn't catch, you are a white man. Is that correct, Dr. Oates? That's right, yes. Bravo. Uh, before we hop yeah. into... And, uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, John Thompson and Don Staley, uh, both really, I mean, great coaches of great teams, but also really fierce defenders of both their players, but also of their communities, which is something that drew me to Georgetown as a fan um, in the in the 1980s, um, and something I still very much admire about Don Staley and many other coaches in the game today. The great Don Staley, greatest basketball player in the history of the University of Virginia. Uh, let's see, before... We get to Caitlin Clark, everything that happens, some of your work on football, mandatory. Uh, racism, I give our definition for the term racism at the beginning of every program. I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. Same definition for both. The definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I think I might define it just a little bit differently um, because I think that it is a system. I do think that it is a global system, although I think that in particular regions and areas it has a specific texture and flavor that's important to understand. But um, additionally, I would say that it's not simply a view that is held by white people. Um, there, you know, white supremacy is so pervasive, such a um, uh, point of view that is accepted as a kind of common sense about the world, um, that there are many people of color who ascribe to um, its tenets as well. Um, One example might be Clarence Thomas, who's on the Supreme Court and who's um, 
course, a black man who has lived a difficult life in a lot of respects, um, but who uses his power to uphold um, white privilege and white domination. Woo, amazing. Mr. Clarence Thomas. Oh, my favorite Clarence Thomas anecdote. He grew up in Georgia. Every black, I think it's male. I have to see about black females that were, that are natives of Georgia state, but all of the black males that I am aware of who are natives of Georgia state, that is, can be a rough place to grow up in Georgia in any time period. (laughs) Clarence Thomas, native Mm -hmm. of Georgia state, said he grew up there. He was called ABC acronym. You want to take a guess, Dr. Oates, what that stands for? (laughs) No, thanks. (laughs) Okay. ABC, America's Blackest Child. That's what he was called on a regular basis growing up in the great land of Georgia. Any hoodles, I will back up. Clarence Thomas, myself, all of the individuals in the known universe who are classified as non-white, we have been terrorized and conditioned to accept white supremacy as how you said it, common sense. Is that true, Dr. Oates? Uh, I see a lot of evidence for that. I mean, the other thing that... Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Very important. I just want to make sure I get some clean answers to a few questions quickly before we move from the definition, and then you can give us all the background. So is what I just said true? We non-white people, just as Clarence Thomas included, we've been terrorized and conditioned to accept white supremacy racism as a global system as common sense. Is that true? I think it's true for many people. I don't think it's true for everyone. Um, but uh, I do think that it, is, it, it takes a lot of work to uh, cast off the sort of shackles of uh, racist common sense. But it is extremely widespread um, and a kind of default setting for engaging in public discussion, public debate. Um, but I would also say that I think that there are, there are lots of people who are... Um, uh, fighting against it, people like Don Staley, who are um, recognizing uh, terminology, language use, casual comments as not harmless, but um, something that needs to be called out and um, have attention drawn to so that people can do better. Okay. I want to pause right here, and I actually want to make a request If you Mm -hmm. can lower your vocabulary level and make sure that we are getting precise answers to the question, because I've concluded one of the ways that individuals classified as white, like yourself, deliberately practice racism, not answering questions directly and or using a lot of unnecessary jargon, pivoting to things that are not even relevant to the question that was asked. If you could be more concise, you can give us the detail, but staying on topic with the question and then making sure we get a clear answer to the question, regardless of what your view is, but just answering the question. Is that acceptable? Yeah. Awesome. And can you 
lower your vocabulary, speak to us more like many black people are allowed to go to school because that happens frequently. So can you lower your vocabulary level a bit for us, please, sir? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Now I want to get back to my definition because Dr. Oates pivoted to Justice Clarence Thomas. And on this week, the lavish vacations and all, they say, oh, man, I have concluded the problem is not Justice Clarence Thomas. I have concluded we are in a global system of racism white supremacy and I want to go back to my definition because I didn't hear if you said which portion was inaccurate so I'll say it again and just let me know is this accurate a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white is that definition accurate well as i was trying to say earlier i i would put it differently um i would agree with a lot of what you said um but i would also say that um, it is a contested system. Hang on one second, because we did this before, and I still didn't get an answer. So is that definition accurate? That would be yes, no, and then you can tell us if no, you can tell us which part is not accurate. That would be greatly appreciated, Dr. Oates. Okay, no. And the reason I think it's inaccurate is because um, I think that the system of white supremacy extends beyond white people what does that oh is that what you meant before about we got justice clarence and all these other people and what have you yes okay do all of the non-white people in the known universe just by being non-white would they directly indirectly and i mean dawn staley everybody who is classified as non-white would they be supporting this system directly indirectly in some manner no, I don't think so. You know some non-white people who are not directly, indirectly supporting the system of racism, white supremacy? Yes. Can you name that person or persons? Um, how about Malcolm X? He's dead. Come on, man. He's dead. You'd have to tell me somebody that's alive. And even now, if you want to take Malcolm X, hey, if you're here, you're spending money and doing all the rest of it. That's supporting the system of racism, white supremacy. Yes, you're spending money and what have you. Is that correct, Dr. Oates? Um, well, I mean, people have to live. Um, exactly. To live. So that means in that process of living, certain things you would have to do that would support the system of white supremacy, racism, directly, indirectly. I just named one, spending money. Is that accurate? I suppose uh, if... If people are spending money, um, then if, if, if by that definition they are supporting white supremacy, then then yes, everybody spends money, so everyone must be supporting it. Got slave owners on the currency, yes. Andrew Jackson and such, right? Mm, mm. That's that strikes me as 
your responses here strike me all of it really because this pivoting to non-white people as anything other than victims where it's sounding like you want to talk about non-white people as practitioners of white supremacy none of that makes logical sense listeners and I generally look at that sort of conduct especially when we have to strain like you know some non-white people who don't support the system of racism who and we go to a dead person like all of this is very suspicious conduct Dr. Oates but that aside that for listeners non-white people make note and particularly because that is so attractive and when I say attractive oh we have been conditioned by individuals like Dr. Oates classified as white that's who is to blame it's other not it's these sellouts we just heard that yesterday it's these black sellouts it's these black coons it's these black uncle toms it's gmo coons like gus who are to blame no cousins the people i don't who think are that's to what blame i would say are classified as white i heard your commentary listeners can process for themselves and we heard exactly where you said my definition is not accurate so yes I got you, Dr. Oates. We will pivot because we spent a lot of time just with that definition, which is so suspicious. Before we get to Caitlin Clark, Angel Reese, Women's Championship, which featured an all or a all white starting five, University of Iowa versus an all black starting five at LSU and that happened twice happened with the uh, South Carolina game against University of Iowa as well I didn't know any of that until all this passed some of your work on football you already told us about that in the introduction which I was pleased to hear uh, wow I, it's mandatory and for listeners, it's mandatory that I get to some of this first, just to kind of give context for the discussion about the championship basketball game between the, the ladies' programs. But what, just because of the work that we've done to get here, 14 years on the air, our book study on John Shaft, written by a white man, Delectable Negro, one of the most important books we've talked about here, full title, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture. Dr. Tommy J. Curry's The Man Not Race Class Genre and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. Thomas A. Foster's Rethinking Rufus was just referencing that book today two more Dr. John Hoberman the Darwin's athletes how sport damaged black America and Dr. Gerald Horns the bitter sweet science racism racketeering and the political economy of boxing all of those authors at least the folks who are alive have been guests on this program to talk about those projects specifically and all of them to various degrees address the homoeroticism in the system of white supremacy and many of them with sports specifically in fact before I can even get to the football or it's no it isn't it's right on the football did I read correctly Dr. Oates did you at one time were you a faculty member at Penn State is that correct or 
did I get misinformed? Penn State near Kensington. Yeah. So uh, Penn State, not the main campus, not but the there main are campus. a number of branch campuses. Yeah. Is that is that is that under the umbrella of the main Penn State University Nittany Lions system, or is it different? Yes. Yes. It's all part of the same system, yes. Okay, okay. So this is in Pennsylvania for folks who are, you know, wherever you are in geography and such. Big state university, Pennsylvania. Okay. Were you, what time period were you there, Dr. Oates? 2005 to 2007. Okay. So this is about four years before everything broke with Jerry Sandusky in 2011. Did you cast, since you, with your research and such and coverage of sports journalism, did you look back when all that happened and they were rioting on the campus of Penn State and, oh my gosh, this is a disgrace. Mm -hmm. Did did you look back and, wow, this may be something I should delve into? Yeah, we, a colleague of mine, and I actually wrote a piece about how Penn State's sort of um, internal language, the way they would talk to students and faculty as an institution, was to talk about the Penn State family. And my um, coworker and I were thinking about how, you know, Joe Pa, Joe Paterno, was sort of transformed into this kind of father figure for the whole institution. Um, and in our article, we um, took issue with that framing of a workplace or a school, saying that a school is not a family. Um, a workplace is not a family. Um, it is uh, it's a workplace or a place of learning. Um, and to call it a family is, first of all, to suggest that the, that all families are good and nurturing, which they are not. Um, and secondly, to say that uh, there's a set of relationships that you have, a very particular kind of relationship that one has with their family that I felt they were trying to um, convince workers to sort of, um, and students to think of the university in that, in that in those terms. And so I found that, and my co-author and I wrote this piece about this trying to criticize that point of view. So when the Paterno scandal broke, I wasn't that surprised to hear that it, um, you know, the the response from students especially, um, but also a lot of alumni and even some faculty on the campus, um, because he had such an elevated and important place in the way the university thought about itself. And, of course, that elevated an important place allowed for him to conduct himself in ways that hurt a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For folks who do not remember or outside the country or whatever it is, short memory, Jerry Sandusky convicted child rapist. I remember Bob Costas asked him on television, are you attracted to young boys? Ooh, am I attracted to young boys? Am I attracted to young boys? Hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my lord, why did your attorney let you <sighs> convicted child rapist? I remember there were thousands of students out rioting on the campus of Penn State. Not because what? children were raped here what Joe Pa didn't do no 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 
you're messing up the football program, man. Got the Big Ten <laughs> schedule, man. Buckeyes are on the schedule. We're going to beat them, man. Wolverines are going <sighs> to... All the... Notwithstanding, I so appreciate the logic of what we just heard from Dr. Oates there. I... Man, we are not a family. They call him Joe Pa. We are not a family. This is a biz- a billion dollar business school, if you want to call it that. But I mean, wow, it's not like this is for free. This is for sure profit business. This is not a family. I had to fill out an application to even get here. This is not a family. And as he stated, not all families are healthy. What in the <sighs> folks should go back? We have that in the archives. Lots of research on that. So important. They moved on so quickly. Like you hardly even hear his name mentioned or that associated with Penn State. They get to go on and play their schedule, and life is great. No further thoughts. That kind <laughs> of keep that in mind. I'm moving deliberately to. I'm trying to pick one there. So whew, I'm going to pick the erotic gaze. In the NFL draft. Now, this is published mm-hmm. in 2007, so a lot of the scholarship that I just mentioned, The Delectable Negro, published some years later. The Man Knot, published some years later. Rethinking Rufus, published some years later. So, a lot of material that would be very relevant to what we're talking about here has come out. So, what, uh, for folks who didn't get to read this, this is from March 2007. We're right in time with the season. Uh, the erotic gaze in the NFL draft. What were you mm-hmm. attempting to get at here, Dr. Oates? So I've been um, studying the NFL draft for a couple of years and at that point and um, sort of watching carefully the broadcasts of the draft, but also reading all the, all the magazines and websites and what have you that lead up to the draft itself. That are published, you know, some months ahead of the draft, and they're published for fans. They're not for uh, scouts or co- coaches or anything like that. But they um, use a lot of the language that one might imagine coaches, scouts, and so on would use to describe a player. So they'll talk about, you know, a player's hand size, or um, if it's an offensive lineman, they'll talk about how. He's got uh, uh, a lot of girth, right? Or maybe he weighs 350 pounds, and that would make him very difficult to get around. And he's incredibly mobile, and maybe he runs the 40-yard dash in five seconds or something like that. But I also noticed that there was a lot of commentary that had nothing to do with football skills. Um, Things like he's tight-skinned. That term got used a lot, meaning that he had high muscular definition, which sort of, you know, is neither here nor there in terms of football ability. I mean, strength is important, but, you know, the draft has many, many different ways of measuring strength Um, and just looking at somebody and the eye test was another term that got thrown around a lot. Somebody, so-and-so passes the eye test, meaning that they looked like a football player, right? They were strapping and strong and muscular and so on. And so, I wondered, you know, like, where is this commentary coming from? It's got nothing, you know, like, for a process that measures every aspect of an athlete's ability, what difference does it make what they look like? Um, But there was a lot of this commentary, and some of it was really 
kind of eye-opening as well. Um, and so I started thinking about why that might be the case. And having read some history of the slave trade and um, slave auctions and so on, um, there's a lot in there about the um, parading of black bodies before white um, potential buyers. They would peruse these bodies. They would like look at them, touch them, put their hands on them, talk about what they looked like and so on. Uh, and these scholars of American slavery have made the point, Walter Johnson is one of them, for example, and they make the point that um, this process was not just about economics. It was also about subjugation of black bodies through sort of sexualizing these bodies, making them erotic. And what I found in the draft is that a lot of that tendency is there as well. that the NFL draft is just like slavery, of course. But I am trying to make the point that the ways in which players are looked at and described and so on um, has a lot of similarities, a lot of echoes of that period. Hmm. Uh, Tight-skinned, I wrote that one down because I have not heard that used before, nor am I certain how that would... You being tight-skinned, does that translate to wide receiver skill tackling skill I don't strapping man is which one I'm sorry yeah right <laughs> oh it's a, yeah yeah that's what I'm yeah the, um, so like a wide receiver for example they would talk about you know his height his height obviously Um, they'll talk about his hand size. They'll talk about his speed in the 40-yard dash. But then they would also talk about him looking the part or being tight-skinned or um, having beautiful muscles or something like that, right? So the first the first set of attributes are obviously about the position and determining whether somebody is um, – uh, an ideal candidate for it. But the other set of attributes about how what they look like, how good-looking they are, um, that they look the part, that they're muscular, um, those kinds of things are totally extraneous. And I felt like it, there needed to be some way to explain why this is happening. Why is this commentary so common in these draft guides? Which again are for fans, right? And this is a this is pitched towards fans. So this is the kind of pleasure that fans are engaging in, mostly white fans, but not entirely white fans, but mostly white fans. Um, and uh, they're reading this, or they're they're being presented with this kind of um, story about these athletes, um, and what could explain it. That was my interest in it. Hmm. That term, uh, tight-skinned, as I just said, I'd never even heard that used before, much less mm -hmm. how it's applied. But then also the term strapping, that is mm -hmm. such a, mm -hmm. what a significant term uh, within the context of white supremacy racism. In fact, just one week ago, I had that term as a hashtag for the title of our program because the school shooting in Nashville just I guess a little over almost two weeks now 
Uh, but the shooting that happened, six people were killed. One of the six victims they were talking about, 61-year-old black male custodian. I'm going to give his name again, or excuse me, his age, 61-year-old black male custodian, Mike Hill. When they came on to describe and this, oh my goodness, everybody loved Big Mike. We called him Big Mike because he was so strong and strapping and woof, you need to move, move a mule. Oh, you get big, strong, strapping Mike. And when I say, are you serious? Are you serious? Are you talking about a horse, a mule, a donkey? I don't know. It doesn't sound like you're talking about a person, much less a six. So you mean he was close to retiring? Most 61 year olds I hear are not talked about as strap maybe healthy you know strong he worked mm-hmm. out and all the strapping oh it was mm-hmm. so plantational but that was one of the victims down in nashville big strong i saw that repeatedly that was not a one-time anomaly thing it was repeatedly big strong strapping mike hill but pivoting to mm-hmm. your report and i guess now i said jerry sandusky but we should also keep in mind this is post your report 2007 Donald Sterling, which I think was the same year Jerry Sandusky was arrested. Donald Sterling, it was reported he was in the Los Angeles Clippers locker room. This is before all that with the tape and Magic Johnson and everything, but he was in the locker room. Ooh, look at these black bodies in the shower. Oh, it's just so gorgeous. And Oh, exactly what we're talking about right now. Have all that in mind. Someone who later, wow, this is a racist. I thought he was salivating over the black dudes before. You write, this is on page 77, the erotic gaze in the NFL draft, race and homoeroticism in the NFL draft. This is the subtitle. The first major event of the week is the weigh-in, which in which hundreds of NFL scouts, general managers, and coaches, together with members of the media, cram into a hotel ballroom to observe. NFL personnel are given a sheet that lists each player's arm and hand measurements together with blanks for height and weight. The players are told to strip to their shorts and line up. As the audience looks out, looks on in studious silence, each player is introduced. Upon hearing his name called, the player takes the stage and poses for the audience even what? for a few moments before his height and weight are measured and announced the strange ritual is one that some of the players find unsettling it was weird man like a meat market said running back Travis Stevens in a 1989 Sports Illustrated story on the ritual dubbed the meat market quarterback Mike Elkins confesses that I felt like a prize bull at a county fair. Arthur Jill Lieber notes that Derek Hill, a wide receiver from Arizona, is visibly uncomfortable. He had known he would had he known he was going to be caught with his pants down. He might not have worn those wild leopard skin bikinis until recently. Prospects were made to wear only their underwear key word made Mm -hmm. those doing the inspection predictably framed the invasiveness of the event as simply a good business practice as an NFL general manager explains and this would have to be invariably a white man I mean it's 
a livestock show. And it's dehumanizing, but it's necessary. If we're mm-hmm. going to pay a kid a lot of money to play football, we have a right to find out as much as we can if we're going to buy them we ought to see what we're buying yikes (laughs) I will just submit one more time did you hear the meat market and bull and all the rest of it delectable Negro, there's so many food references in all of this as well. Mm-hmm. The consumption of mm-hmm. black bodies does that? I don't even. <sighs> when you when you present this, did people mm-hmm. scoff? Did they challenge? What sort of response when when people first read a passage like that? How do people respond, Doctor Oates? Um, I don't know how they respond to that passage in particular, but but. In in response to the whole argument, I have gotten um, a number, a range of responses from people who are, you know, in agreement and um, uh, point to other scholarship that it connects with, but other people who have pushed back and say, you know, like this is just this is just a business practice, right? I mean, this is just what they're doing, right? And of course. Of course, it's framed as a business practice. Of course, right? That's <laughs> that's um, that's part of it, um, but uh, it doesn't explain everything, right? So I try to turn the question around on those on those critics and say, well, then you explain it. Like, how do we explain the fact that this language is part of this analysis when it has nothing to do with football ability? Like, what 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 accounts for that? Um, and you know. Usually it's dismissed as I'm making too much out of something that doesn't need to be, you know, examined so closely. But, you know, that's that's what I do for a living is to, <laughs> is to look closely at media narratives and to and to try to parse the words and try to understand exactly how they're being framed so that I can, you know, try to highlight aspects of the way that those things are talked about in ways that maybe uncover things that aren't obvious to people. But, you know, from that passage that you read, I think it, I think it would be pretty obvious to a lot of people. But, you know, the draft, especially in those days, was not really on a lot of people's radar, certainly not on the radar of a lot of uh, college professors. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge event, which is also curious. You know, the, the, the draft itself is on two different channels. Um, it's one of the only sporting events to be broadcast live on two different channels. It is, um, you know, draws 30 to 40 million viewers over the course of the weekend. So it's a major, major event in the calendar um, and seemed to me to be crying out for um, some investigation, especially given the fact that, as you say, you know, most of the general managers, most of the people making the decisions about contracts are white people and most of the players are are not most of the players are black players so i mean about two-thirds of the players in the nfl today are black players so that's a dynamic that kind of doesn't always get commented on but which i think is absolutely important to understanding what's going on in the nfl 
another portion in your report where you make it super flagrant. Uh, this is a few pages down. You write, <clears throat> uh, Dundee's concludes that it is highly likely that the ritual aspect of football providing as it does a socially sanctioned framework for male bodily contact is a form of homosexual behavior. Of course, football and other sporting practices like it all proceed under the assumption that no one involved is aware of the erotic potential of these phenomena that everyone Mm -hmm. is heterosexual. Nevertheless, Mm -hmm. Pronger argues that the very structure of territorial games such as football invokes a violent rape aesthetic in which teams are idealized as ritual phalluses attempting penetration of an opponent's territorial anus. Football (laughs) is riddled with references that liken the game to aggressive sex as former player David Copay remembers. We were told to go out and fuck those guys to take the ball and stick it up their asses or down their throats. The coaches would yell, knock their dicks off. Nick Trujillo notes a music video screened as part of ABC's Monday Night Football which followed the workout routines of two players set to rap duo Salt and Peppers what a man Mariah Burton Nelson calls football a male love affair with the male gender noting that for 51 weeks each year readers of Sports Illustrated enthusiastically examine photographs of skintly clad muscular men typically black males television watchers do the same admire attractive images of male beauties although these fans do not generally concede the erotic subtext voyeurism is voyeurism acknowledged or not I will stop there I would have given out a you know I don't know trigger warning or some sort of alert but I do think folks you know this is scholarly being you know adults trying to be uh, as someone who pays attention to words I, I'd say that frequently sometimes people you know tell you a lot more about what they're thinking and what's motivating their behavior just analyzing the words that they use even if they are not paying attention to those terms and you know tell you we didn't mean it that way and all the rest I was really stunned I had not heard go out and fuck those guys stick it I had not heard I mean I guess they clean it up for ESPN but I mean what yeah <laughs> what to say and that's David Cope who uh, played in the NFL for many years and then uh, after retiring came out as gay um, the territorial anus argument that you uh, read there too that's that's from Brian Pronger a um, late um, sports studies scholar, also a gay man. Um, and many of the other works that I um, mention in that little passage are by feminist critics, right? So I think that the uh, football's um, discourse, the, the way that football is presented to audiences is not usually intended for um, you know gay men or for women at least not in the 1970s and 1980s, but it was precisely those people 
listening carefully, reading carefully, who were noticing some of these things. So I owed a lot. I owe a lot to to their insight. Uh, I'm pivoting because I had it in the background for the LSU kerfuffle. I'm pivoting. Mm-hmm. It's important, but it for me, it just reinforces everything that we just talked about with this erotic gaze. And I mean, you can be, we talked about all this with Dr. Gerald Horn, the bitter sweet science. That book wasn't published when this came out. He talks about the same thing with boxing that boxing. Hey, you only got shorts on really. So, I mean, you're going and having lots and boxing a super homosocial environment, especially in its heyday in the uh, 20th century, 1900s, all of these white men, powerful white men with their cigars in an exclusively white environment going to watch Joe Lewis, Sugar Ray Robinson, all these, uh, Muhammad Ali, even all the way through, like, hmm, how curious talked about that in mm-hmm. detail with Dr. Gerald Horn and even you talked about in the report lynching kind of the same thing where you can see a long pattern of this same behavior all the way up to Donald Sterling and all the rest of it mm-hmm. but oh my goodness I'd write the report that I have the sporting paratext reception and the male domain <laughs> in CBS's one shining moment man oh mm-hmm. man uh, I was stunned for so many reasons. I just sat there and talked about Teddy Pendergrass. I, oh, I was stunned for so. I had no idea Luther Vandross is still the person who is doing the song for One Shot. I just looked. University of Connecticut days ago won the championship. Who is doing One Shining Moment? Luther Vandross has been dead for I don't know how many years. Luther Vandross, One Shining Moment. Mm-hmm. What in the world was this uh, report about this here? The sporting paratext reception and the should be white male domain, I think, in CBS's one shining moment. So the paratext is a um, like a, a, a like a trailer for a movie, a movie poster for a movie, not the main text, but um, a, a, a kind of hint a preview, a um, introduction to the main text for the audiences, right? And so, or it can be like a recap or something like that, right? Like a highlight show would be an example of a paratext. Um, and so One Shining Moment, as I, I think most of your listeners may be familiar with it, it's like a it's like a four or five minute kind of recap of the NCAA tournament that happens, the men's NCAA tournament, it happens at the end of the final, usually a couple, maybe half an hour after the final wraps up. And it couples this song, One Shining Moment, performed usually by um, Teddy Pendergrass or Luther Vandross, um, and uh, set to highlights from that year's tournament, a kind of outro for the um, NCAA tournament and and CBS's, you know, broadcast of the NCAA tournament. Um, What we were interested in was this moment in 2010, in particular, where Jennifer Hudson was um, presented as the singer. And so during at, at the end of the 2010 tournament, Jennifer Hudson sang One Shining Moment. There was a 
huge criticism, an avalanche of criti- criticism from fans and viewers who um, demanded that the Vandross version be restored. Now, Luther Vandross, of course, was a a, a gay man, not probably a um, like the the obvious representative of um, masculinity, uh, sporting masculinity anyway, but he became, in this particular controversy, the um, preferred voice to be hearing uh, that these fans were uh, calling for his return. So he returned the next year, and it's, it, as you mentioned, he's still the voice of One Shining Moment. I don't think that CBS is going to be changing that anytime soon. I mean, part of what people like about One Shining Moment is the fact that it's, stay, that it's kind of the song's always the same. The images are always different, right? Um, so interrupting that was probably a, uh, an issue, but... As we argue, this is a piece I wrote with my colleague Travis Vogan um, in the piece, that going from a male singer to a woman singer um, drew specific criticism from a lot of viewers who expressed outrage uh, about the choice. Um, and we tried to understand why, right? And, and so what we concluded is that, um, and we are far from the first people to say this. This has been a, a point of feminist critique of um, of sport for a long time, that sport is a kind of male domain. It is claimed by many men to be for men, and that when women participate in sports, they are sort of intruding on sports. Um, it's something to be mocked or ignored. Um, or maybe patronized, but not um, enjoyed in the same way. Um, and what we found here was, you know, just the mere presence of a female voice singing One Shining Moment um, would bring up a lot of this commentary. Stunning. Stunning. Uh, I, this is a, a point I want to raise before I get to Luther Vandross and Teddy Pendergrass specifically, which... <laughs> Back in the erotic gaze in the NFL, the portion that talks about the containment uh, that a lot of sport, NFL, sport in general under the system of white supremacy racism is about uh, the white containment of black aggression masculinity. Uh, that's why they're in position, what we already said, general manager, coach, all that they even have one of the racist jokes is what do you call 10 black guys or excuse me what do you call one white guy with 10 black guys you want to take a guess at that one Mm-mm. Come on. I don't know You're supposed to get that one man it's a football uh, racist joke Tom Brady quarterback one white man 10 black guys who's supposed to be in charge Tom Brady Tom Brady mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. that uh, power dynamic and talking about that's Tom Brady supposed to be in charge of these black people. You don't win the Super Bowl if you have, you know, black people. It's got to be a white man in charge controlling black masculinity with even down to the specifics of this one shining moment kerfuffle. I don't think this is black guys that are out here mad because Jennifer Hudson is going to replace Teddy P. Or Luther Vandross. I think this is white men, and I'm just looking at mm-hmm. the history of sports. It's 
this is white men's domain because it's not men who've got upset when women have intruded. It's white men. Hey, they got upset when black males intruded. What I just said, Muhammad Ali. In fact, even sometimes they say you black males are not going to participate. Now, we don't have black males in Jackie uh, in Major League Baseball. Good for you, Jackie Robinson. Get rid of you a different way. Now, we don't. you see Muhammad Ali. Now you don't. It's white men who make these decisions. The combine and the draft. I said the word was made them come out there and they're undergo. Who made that decision? It's white men. So I don't. Am I being incorrect? Because I think that's important. This is not men who got upset about Jennifer Hudson doing one shotting moment. I think this was white men specifically who got upset about this. Am I in error here, Doctor Oates? I don't know. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of this, a lot of the commentary happened on Twitter and on um, social media. So it's a little hard to tell in some cases, but I, th- I think it's probably a safe assumption. Just given the fact that, you know, the mo- most of the audience is white. So makes sense to me. Is there, as someone who studies this, at, at least to me, it seemed almost flagrantly obvious just because it seems like this has been documented for such a long time that many white basketball fans at least in the u.s for many decades have said we prefer ncaa basketball the whole amateur and blah 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 and they play for the love of the game it's not all these spoiled brats who make millions of dollars all of that is kind of coded racism hogwash for we like ncaa basketballs because there's more white people at the NCAA mm-hmm. level, we don't get to see as many white guys if we're watching NBA. I feel like that's been, that's been said for so long. In fact, they were talking about starting a whole different professional league just for white guys because there were so many white people frustrated that man, Bron James, I'm sick of it. What happened to Larry Bird? What can we get some white guys? I, am I am I making this up? Am I in, in being accurate at least here? I mean, I I, I think you're. Correct that there's a lot of fans who are um, and have been historically too turned off by um, the increasingly black uh, makeup of the player force in the NFL and the NBA. Um, I just finished a book recently by uh, Teresa Runstetler, a professor at uh, American University, called Black Ball. Um, which I would highly recommend to people. It is uh, a history of the NBA in the 1970s. And you might recall that at the end of the 1970s, as the kind of conventional story of the of the NFL's, or I'm sorry, the NBA's popularity goes, it's that, you know, Magic and Larry come in and save the NBA. And save it from what? They save it from a very unpopular um, place in the American mainstream, you know, people talk about how the 1980 uh, NBA finals were broadcast on tape delay. Um, that was mostly the result of a of a really bad media deal that the people who you know run the NBA, white people, made um, that bad decision. But it was attributed, usually attributed, to the fact that there's too many black guys in the league. Right. And and not just black guys, but black guys who are not like Magic Johnson, not like Michael Jordan, not people who the, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack can connect with. 
in some way. And so the league did set out at that moment to to really change itself um, and make itself more marketable to a white mainstream. Um, so in Black Ball, Teresa Runstetler fascinatingly talks about this period of the 1970s in which the league um, becomes increasingly black, in which black forms of play increasingly start to shape basketball. The first slam dunk contest held in the ABA in 1976. Um, dunking, of course, had been outlawed in college for a time, um, clearly targeted against Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But, um, you know, that, that eventually fades because people like to watch slam dunks, right? And so I think there's this deep ambivalence in um, among audiences for the NFL and the NBA of loving to see the athleticism, loving to see what these athletes can do, but also having a sense of, you know, um, disgust. And sometimes I don't think it's too, too much to say disgust at, at, at the behavior that of black athletes that they think of as being like sort of beyond the pale. Um, uh, so run settler, details a lot of that in her book in the 1970s but you know it, you don't you look at the 1980s you look at the 1990s you look well into the 2000s you go look to you know the women's basketball tournament this year to find plenty of examples of that pattern painful but pattern um right. hopping back to the pair t- luther vandros Teddy Pendergrass, and particularly keeping in mind what we just heard, erotic gaze and all the rest of it. So, uh, you're right. Uh, the response to one shining moment in combination with CBS's reaction to them situate the sporting paratext as a specifically masculine tradition that, despite its mawkishness, is emasculated and rendered inauthentic by the intrusion of women. These responses intervene to assert and protect one shining moment's masculine stability against an unacceptably feminine threat. In the process, they demonstrate masculinity's complexity within normative bounds. Consider, for example, the variety of male singers who have performed one shining moment. Barrett, a white folk singer, Pendergrass, a macho and raspy-voiced African-American sex symbol, and Vandros, a silky African-American vocalist, widely rumored to be gay. I think Patti LaBelle confirmed she... I don't think Patti LaBelle would lie. He Luther Vandros started the Patti LaBelle fan club, so I definitely don't think she would lie, and she said that, yeah, he was so-called gay, so I'll take her word. Uh... Responses to Hudson's performance of One Shining Moment both demonstrate masculinity's discursive construction as stable and illuminate the difference between those invented boundaries often contain and gloss over. But as these discourses promote masculine solidarity, racial identities remain central to the commercial presentation of college basketball in general and one shining moment in particular. The Paratex association with and eventual return to Vandros simultaneously courts black viewers 
while appealing to mainstream white audiences through its cultivation of an authentic but non-threatening black masculine style, a familiar strategy in popular entertainment and culture. Now that's one before I can even proceed, just to make sure that we all get that is so much said right there, Dr. Oates. If you were going to restate that to us like we were trying to get our mm-hmm. GED, how would you explain mm-hmm. it to us? So um, we're trying to say there that uh, one shining moment is a uh, it's a let's see how to put this. It's a song that um, when we say it's mawkish, what we mean is that it's kind of viewed as kind of a, a cheesy tradition by some people, but also one that they love. Right. So a lot of the people who are arguing about Jennifer Hudson taking over um, were, you know, also people who, you know, don't particularly take one shining moment as, you know, the greatest, you know, it's, it's not a tearjerker for them. It's not going to make them necessarily uh, break down emotionally, <laughs> but they want to see it preserved as it is. And what do they want to see preserved? What they want to see preserved is this union between blackness, which is marketable in in certain ways, right? Like when we talked to, when I, I spoke earlier about Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, those are two good examples, right? Very easy to uh, market those figures um, to the public. Other figures like Ron Artest or Allen Iverson, a little more challenging, right? Um, so Luther Vandross and Teddy Pendergrass represent a kind of black authenticity, a black uh, a black reality, right? That many white viewers want to find a connection with. Um, but at the same time, they it's about men. And it's about men being able to celebrate with men and to um, uh, commune with men around college basketball and around this kind of annual ritual of one shining moment. When Jennifer Hudson appears as the singer, it suddenly disrupts all of that and people get very angry, right? And so again, my colleague and I were interested in sort of being like, what's going on here? Why did people care? so much about Jennifer Hudson singing it instead of Luther Vandross. And we thought it was really not like, it's not really just about tradition or maintaining the tradition. It's about maintaining a certain kind of tradition because one shining moment, you know, had been sung by other men before, and that had not been a big problem. But when a woman sang it, that suddenly did become an issue. So it's both about, you know, sexism and a, a, a flavor of racism in um, U.S. sports as well. One, I said flavor. Do you see what I mean? The delectable mm-hmm. Negro, human right. consumption right. and homoeroticism. Oh, my gosh. In U.S. slave culture, top three, top three, top three uh, books all time. Uh, even with, as you said it, the, the, the homosocial bonding, that is this white homosocial bonding around NCAA basketball, 
uh, and this song, and even as I pro- and it's white men who are upset. In fact, I was thinking if you did that graph, it would be perfect overlap. The white people who are saying that <laughs> classless uppity angel Reese, no count LSU, they can't even go out and display sports. It's the that would be the same group that I would expect. Man, what is Jennifer Hudson? You got this black heifer up here and put and they didn't say put Teddy back. They said put Luther yeah. Vandross, who is rumored to be gay, uh, as right. as the what he just said, the safe, non-threatening black man. Even I played the song; you all can hear it. He's singing in falsetto. It doesn't sound mm-hmm. like what you said, Teddy P. If you want to compare Teddy Pendergrass, South Carolina native, uh, Alec Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Husky, raspy, strapping. That's not the one that they said. We don't want that. Put Luther falsetto. And that's still the version that's there to like. uh, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There are very few. You can watch all kinds of sport. The only sporting events that I can think of where they don't change the song after all these years. The most the, the first one that came to mind to be truthful. The event that's about to happen in a few days, the Kentucky Derby, for decades, they've mm. had the same song in spite of protest. You want to take a guess at that one? My old Kentucky home. Bingo. Yes, sir. In spite of Breonna Taylor, not to honor the death of Muhammad Ali. We don't care. My old Kentucky home. That's going to play in a few days at the Kentucky. That's like, which says a lot. Those are the only type of songs that I can think where it's like, No. We're playing this one. Mm-hmm. We're not changing it. They changed the NBA final. They don't play the same song for the NBA finals every year. They changed it a bunch of times. They changed networks and all of that. Hockey, mm-hmm. who cares? Baseball, they don't play the same song. Mm-hmm. With protest, we put it back. The person who's singing it has been dead, I think, for over a decade. And it's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that significant, you think, Dr. Oates, the fact that uh, I say, I mean, it's not rumored. They, I don't think Patty LaBelle would lie. I'm saying Luther Vandross. If somebody can tell me otherwise, I'll accept that. But that a, a black male, gay, do you think that's significant? That that's the version that they want, and him singing a falsetto. Yeah, I don't know how many people knew that it was even Luther Vandross. I think they just, you know, a lot of people knew that it was, especially white people who don't. <laughs> You know, aren't aren't Luther Vandross's main audience uh, for his music? I think they recognize it as a male voice, and that was the and 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 as R and B, right? Obviously, it's got an R and B inflection, so probably a black male voice. But the, they did not think of it. In, I I think in terms of like a lot of people identified it as uh, Luther Vandross, um, but maybe they did. You know, um, which is <laughs> which is pretty interesting. I don't know. Uh, and even that, either one, if they put Teddy P back, these are black males. As you said, aren't these guys are known for making songs like some people like baby making music. Like why? Why do you want black males who are known for their like? Cr- that's another word. Crooning. Why do you want mm. black crooners? To do the one shining moments. Well, is there some love making going on that I met? Homoeroticism and black. Oh, 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 oh. Why would they pick crooners, Dr. Oates? It's a good question. Um, 
I mean, because Teddy Pendergrass, I would not really classify him as a crooner, but he's you know he's definitely R and B. I think I, I think part of the decision was about trying to reach out to part of CBS's demographic for uh, the NCAA tournament broadcast, which is mostly white, but includes a sizable audience of black watchers. So it's meant as a kind of possibly as a kind of uh, uh, gesture towards that part of the audience. But it's also, of course, you know, basketball is associated with blackness uh, and has been now for several decades. And so um, despite a lot of people's misgivings about that. Um, and so it's a way of nodding to that as well, perhaps. But, you know, the the actual, like, concrete reason why I, we don't have access to that because that is probably a decision made in a boardroom at CBS somewhere, that, you know, by invitation only. So, but we can speculate. Hmm. Seriously doubt. It's going to be lots of uh, dark people. Ron Artest is not going to be one of the invitees well, at that meeting, I don't think. Alan Iverson? I don't know. Man, man, I don't know. Uh, let's see. Our person who dialed in, uh, caller last four digits, nine four, or excuse me, I messed that all up. Four nine one four. Let me get it that correct. Four nine one four. Did you have a question for Dr. Oates? Uh, good evening, Gus. Uh, good evening. Uh, I'm sorry, was it Dr. Oates? Yes, yeah. sir. Uh, Tom, yeah. Yes, sir. Um, I guess I did. The only question I had, um, well, I had I'm sorry, my finger slipped. That was Hello? my fault. I was trying to clean my screen and my finger slipped. Go ahead and repeat your question, sir. That was my nah, fault. No, you good. Nah, you good, Gus. You good, bro. Um, the, I just had two questions real quick. Um, the first one, I guess I just wanted to ask, uh, I just wanted to ask, what was, um, what did you mean by racist common sense? Like, if you could kind of, I guess, talk about that. Yeah, the, by racist common sense, I mean a, um, a racism that is not, uh, sort of outside of the mainstream, but a racism that is well inside the mainstream. So uh, a way of talking about the world in a racist way that is also not um, easily identifiable as racist by every listener, right? So somebody using the N-word, right, on uh, television or something is, is obviously using racist speech, but that is not racism that is in the mainstream. People who use the N-word are made to apologize for it usually. Um, they, uh, or if they don't, they are marginalized. But there are other ways of um, asserting white supremacy, of uh, denigrating blackness that, have, that can pass with no one commenting on it. Um, and that's what I mean when I'm talking about common sense racism. Um, not that racism is common sense, but that a lot of what passes for common sense is racist. 
Okay. Um, so basically what I'm receiving from that is you're basically saying a form of racism that is more accepted otherwise mm-hmm. more not not pushed back against in any way shape or right. form right well maybe by some people but not by you know uh co-hosts on a on a talk show or a um you know a, a reporter writing a newspaper story or something like that those views will still appear uncommented on um and just circulate um okay. so for so example, what, oh sorry go ahead no i'm sorry i i just wanted to say just before i ask the second question just a quick follow-up because i know other people might have questions um i just mm-hmm. wanted to ask when you say common sense then would it be common sense for who like in particular in regards to who is it that would be using that the the racist common sense type of language to avoid being um having any backlash mm-hmm. for mainstream commentators and since I'm a media scholar I'm usually looking at people commenting in the media so people speaking through journalists or journalists themselves who are characterizing some sort of problem in a way that is racist, but which usually doesn't get identified as racist by uh, most of their readers. Not to say all of their readers, right, or all of their viewers, but um, but the majority will hear those comments and just sort of nod along. Okay, I got you. Um, my second question was, Earlier in the conversation, you said that, uh, I guess, white supremacy in response to um, Gus's definition of white supremacy, you said that white supremacy for some people has a different texture and flavor. And Mm. that um, was very reminiscent of what he does speak about in regards to the delectable Negro. But Mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you from your perspective, like, what is an example of a different texture or a different flavor of white supremacy? Okay. So uh, let's take the examples of France and the United States, just to take two different countries, right? So both of them have histories of racism, but they have different histories of racism, right? Um, There is a colonial history that France um, uh, has had to answer for, And there's a history of enslavement in the United States, which is somewhat different. Not to say that there were not colonies that, I mean, of course, France controlled Haiti and there was a a huge revolt there. Um, but But the histories were different, right? The histories and experience were different. And that means that the way in which racism operates in the United States versus the way racism operates in France is going to be subtly different, um, which is not to say that one is better than the other or anything like that. But it is to say that there are going to be important differences based on those histories and the present circumstances. Right. So like in, in France, for example, inner cities never became um, places where black people lived in or were segregated, right? Instead, it was in in uh, suburbs, mostly, surrounding Paris. There are a number of suburbs which are 
very racially segregated. There's a lot of poverty in a lot of those suburbs. But in the United States, usually the suburbs would be, uh, again, segregated, but segregated for, for more affluent white people. And the inner city would be segregated for poor black people. So that kind of um, that kind of difference, right, um, is another way in which I think that there are like these subtle differences, and they inform the way that racism circulates because people will sometimes talk about inner city neighborhoods in the United States, and what they mean are segregated black neighborhoods, right? But you couldn't say that same thing in France to a French person and have them understand you. That 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 code okay. word wouldn't have the same effect. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, I guess in summary, um, and I'll hold my line after this, what it seems like would be more accurate would be that in different areas, I guess, or different regions of the world, white people have different ways of practicing white supremacy. Would right. you feel like that may be more accurate or... Because for me, when I hear like different textures or different mm -hmm. flavors, it, it kind of comes off as like, it almost sounds appealing, like in a certain type of way. Like I feel like that type of language is, um, can be used or interpreted by other people who are less confused or more confused as myself, I should say. Um, mm -hmm in regards to understanding, I guess, conversations surrounding racism. Because when you say, you know, like Paris, for example, uh, mm -hmm. has a different flavor, a texture of racism, I'm thinking about croissants. Speechifying. And I'm We're speechifying. About, We're speechifying. You know, I totally forgot. We do not speechify. Well, so did you, have a, your, did you have any other questions or was that it? Okay. Oh, yeah. No, that's all. That's all. All right. Thank you. We do not speechify much yeah. kindly. Thank you, sir. Uh, our caller at zero three five six zero three five six. Did you have a question for Doctor Oates? You should be with us. Different seasoning. Yes, That's sir. what I was thinking. <laughs> different, different seasonings, depending on where you are. Our caller at zero three five six. Yes, sir. Can be heard. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, greetings to other calls and listeners. And um, your guest, Dr. Oates, um, I just have a couple questions for you. Um, I haven't read your work, so I'm not sure how far you go into the investigation um, as far as sports um, and homoeroticism. Mm -hmm. um, um, so my first question is, what is the need that the people who classify themselves as white have for the homoerotic objectification of black males in so-called sports? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I think that the, I think that sports is about, especially for fans, I mean for fans, right? I'm talking about people watching other athletes. That's a form of pleasure, right? And it's a complex form of pleasure. It's about, you know, you don't know the outcome, what's the outcome going to be. Um, it's about watching athletes, but it is also, um, you know, and, and this is building on a lot of observations that feminist scholars have made for a long time. Um, it's men watching men, and they're men watching and commenting on men's bodies. Um, the point here, which I want to be sure to make 
very clearly, is that the suggestion isn't that um, everyone watching sports is a secret gay person, right? That <laughs> they're a repressed secret gay person. It's to say that that kind of pleasure is um, highlighted in sports and that people do gravitate towards it. Um, why they gravitate towards it is because, you know, human bodies are sources of pleasure and uh, people can find human bodies pleasurable in different ways. Some of those ways are unproblematic and some of those ways are highly problematic, like a, a real issue. Um, and this is one of those places where I think it is a real problem because it is uh, unreflectively reviving a kind of a, a, a pleasure that um, is associated with enslavement. And um, that was the point I was trying to make with the piece and also to try to, you know, I, that, what I want readers to take away from that is not just that that happens, but also to think about how is the pleasure that I'm consuming as a sports fan, um, what kinds of ways is it, is it appealing to me? Um, because, uh, I don't think it's as straightforward as, um, as we often talk about it. Does that answer your question? Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, I do. Um, my second question, um, why do people who classify themselves as white prefer blacks in general, but black, well, I'm sorry, black males? who are either anti-sex or feminine or some form of either physical eunuch or symbolic eunuch to be viewed and showcased. And thank you for your time. I'm going to out. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Do you have an example? Are you still there? Yes, I do. Um, of Luther Vandross, because mm -hmm. for a long time, well, Luther Vandross, um, mm -hmm. I will say, um, Teddy Prendergrass, um, in a certain case, well, eunuch, because he's in a wheelchair. And I'll say Michael Jackson. Hmm. And I'm you. Dr. Dr. John question. Hoberman, uh, just because you mentioned him in your work, he includes Muhammad mm -hmm. Ali on that list after all of his health problems when he was effectively eunuch neutralized. Then he. <laughs> Come hold the torch, Muhammad Ali. He, don't, it, Mom, we love it. when that was not the case, when he had all his faculties and could talk and was an uppity nigra, a la Angel Reese, if you need another one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I, I haven't thought a lot about that, but um, that is a really interesting question. I think that um, the flip side of your question is, you know, why is it that, um, uh, sort of the people who push back, activists or athletes who push back against expectations on them, like Angel Reese do, why are they received in the way that they are? Um, and that's, I think, because white mainstream sports culture, as it's produced by CBS and Sports Illustrated, all these you know media companies are uh overwhelmingly staffed by white people who make the decisions about how to frame the sports um they want to produce a consistent reliable and bankable narrative about sports and um what angel reese does what muhammad ali did 
was to mess up that narrative, right, by introducing the complexity um, of their experience, uh, which was not welcome. So I think that, you know, that can help us maybe understand why uh, Muhammad Ali as a, um, you know, in his old age, um, suffering from Parkinson's, uh, can become a hero. Whereas, you know, when he was uh, um, speaking with reporters in a very frank way in the 1960s, you know, he was one of the most hated athletes of all time in the United States. So it's an interesting transformation. It's a great question. I'll have to think about it. Much obliged uh, for your questions, uh, 0356. Um, man, what did they say this week since you are at the University of Iowa? Did you talk uh, about the uh, NCAA championship controversy and everything? Caitlin Clark, did you talk about that with your students this past week, Dr. Oates? Yes, I did. Wow. What did, well, I guess out two parts. So, number one, what math three i have to even back up so give us the demographics of your students first of all then i can get to my questions white non-white what are the demographics yeah my class is almost entirely white um the university of iowa is um is a is a predominantly white institution and whiter than most predominantly white institutions um it's more men than women, but there is a, um, you know, some gender balance in there as well. Um, everybody had watched the game. Um, everybody was very excited about the game, too, it seemed. Uh, there was a range of responses, but I think, you know, by and large, a lot of people were um, kind of willing to criticize Angel Reese's behavior. Luckily for me, I, I'm teaching a course this semester on sports and nationalism. So um, that week, we just happened to be reading about Joe Lewis's fight with Max Schmeling in 1938. And that provided an opening for me to talk about Jack Johnson, heavyweight champion from 1908 to 1915, the first black heavyweight champion who was as many of your listeners will know, um, uh, even surpassed Muhammad Ali as uh, a black sports hero who was widely reviled by white sports writers and fans. Um, he was hated because he was um, a, uh, a he behaved like any other heavyweight champion. He was boastful. He was full of confidence. Um, he uh, married a white woman. Um, and these things enraged the mainstream public in the early 1900s. And so when, Jack, uh, when Joe Lewis finally gets a chance to fight for the heavyweight title, um, this is about 20 years after, uh, after Johnson had lost his title, and no black uh, boxer had been allowed to fight for the heavyweight title until Joe Lewis. Um, Joe Lewis's manager put into place seven commandments for him to follow. And they were things like, you know, never gloat over an opponent. Um, and one of them was never be photographed with a white woman. And the reason was because they wanted to 
maintain it uh, an acceptable image for Joe Lewis so that he could be at once a champion but also accepted by the white mainstream. Um, and so he had to confine his behavior in all kinds of in all kinds of ways. I mean, he had to be very careful about it. It wasn't just in the ring. It was every time he was in public, he had to be aware of what he was doing, who he was standing next to, how he was speaking, what kinds of things he was uh, what kinds of things he was saying to make sure that he didn't offend um, the white public in the way that Jack Johnson had done. And you know, things did not go great for Jack Johnson, unfortunately. Um, as a result of his pr provocations. So, um, you know, we talked about that. We talked about Muhammad Ali after 1964, defeating um, Sonny Liston uh, while he was uh, fraternizing with Martin Luther King, or sorry, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. Of course, he would convert to the Nation of Islam just after that fight, and he announces it to the press corps just after he's defeated Sonny Liston and there's a number of furious, you know, journalists in the room who are pushing back against his self-definition. And he says something really important. He says, uh, I get to be who I to Angel Reese's statement, right? Which was very, very similar in which she said, basically, right. This is for, uh, everybody who thought that I was too hood or, you know, too black, right? Too bad. This is just who I am, and I'm going to be who I'm going to be. Um, and so I I hoped that sort of understanding that context would help students understand with a little more depth what this was about, because it wasn't just about, you know, trash talk. <laughs> it was about a history of racism in American sports and a history of trying to confine black athlete, black athletes' behavior and speech in ways that white audiences find acceptable. And the thing that is, of course, most um, interesting about that is that Caitlin Clark is a huge trash talker. And, you know, probably the most prom I mean, with Angel Reese now, probably the most prominent trash talker in women's college basketball today. So, um, but that was celebrated. That was, you know, treated with a um, with delight by the media, who even put together montages about her different acts of of trash talk. So, um, we talked about that. We also talked about the fact that you know, Caitlin Clark herself came out and said. No one should be criticizing Angel Reese, right? She said what she said. Trash talk is part of the game. And she understands, you know, Caitlin Clark doesn't need anybody to protect her. <laughs> but these commentators came out of the woodwork to defend the honor of Caitlin Clark for, you know, Angel Reese doing exactly what Caitlin Clark did to her. So I hope that the students at the end of that conversation were able to sort of understand that in a bit more depth. Man, I'm I'm processing all of this. So this majority white. I mean, is it like one person there who's classified as black? Uh, is it one person who's non-white? Period, or is it exclusively individuals classified as white in your classes? Uh, I think we have two students who are mixed race, but I don't know for sure because it's <laughs> um, not listed on there. 
Okay, okay. Uh, out of 20, 21 students. Out of 21 students total? Mm, yes. Wow, okay, okay. Uh, I guess I'll pause. I say it all. Folks should already know. Anytime you hear the Brown Bomber, they got all these race. Oh, my God. They got all these racist names. The best one that I heard, he mentioned uh, Jack Johnson, one of Jack Johnson's mm-hmm. toughest opponents. Sam, the Boston Tar Baby Langford. Come on. Ooh. Who wants... <laughs> I'm done. I quit. I don't even want to go on. But, but that's his on like they got it in the newspaper and every same way with Joe, the Brown Bomber. They got all these like. Anyway, uh, Joe, I every time I say his name, folks already know what I'm going to say, because he said things didn't work out well for Jack Johnson. Well, they didn't work out well for Joe Lewis, either illiterate tax chief Joe Lewis. So you can find and did was his manager Moses? Because I thought I'm mistaken. He said seven commands. Did Moses come down from the mountaintop and provide him with tablets? I mean, Jesus Christ, the religion of white supremacy. And it still didn't work out well. Um, With the students, I'm processing that. So we got this soup. He said we are an especially white institution among predominantly white institutions. Yowzer. Uh, So he's got his class, his students who are in journalism communications he said they seemed excited about the game caitlin clark again for folks who don't pay attention she'd been playing historically great basketball i think she had 40 points 10 assists in the semifinal game against an undefeated defending championship south carolina team coached by the great dawn staley where they had to ask her after the game so you got these monkeys and bullies on your team that lost to that white girl caitlin clark how does it feel hmm so they were excited to watch all of this, and she said that they came in and they seemed ready to criticize Angel Reese. Now I hear about that. I'm, I'm stunned. If they've been, they know Jack Johnson. They read about all this and Muhammad Ali, and they st- they ostensibly, if they've been watching the tournament, they saw Caitlin Clark do the same thing. You can't see me. Urgh, get out of here. Ah, get out of here. Mock the whole Louisville team and everybody else. Jumped up on the scores table. Ah, they loved it. Like, that white girl is tough. Woo! So, you know, if, if everybody loves a little trash talk and this is all theater, then why would they have a problem with Angel? I even saw, talking about where I saw one, uh, the verb used was stalked. Angel restalked. Caitlin Clark. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, did she have a butcher knife? My gosh. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I'm stunned to hear that. I can, I'm processing, like, dang. It sounds like you have some students that I would suspect of being racist because that's not naivete. That's all, oh, man. You victimized our white. I mean, I can, maybe they were partial. I can, maybe some of them knew Caitlin Clark or what have you. But, I mean, that is, I would, am I wrong for expecting them to be, what would I say, more just uh, in in process, these are folks who would know better. These are folks who shouldn't have been. They shouldn't have needed you to come in and give them a refresher about the history of racism with uppity black athletes. Well, I think a lot of students don't encounter very much of the history of racism before they reach college. I, I don't know how many of them knew about Jack Johnson or Joe Lewis even um, before the week the week's assigned reading. Um, it's, you know, a feature of uh, the, you know, American educational system. There are people, 
you know, working to to make this as uh, watertight as possible now, right? That students don't learn about these things, and so um, and and you know the the ma- major narrative, the the especially you know on network television and mainstream media um, was about you know, Angel Reese doing these things that you mentioned, right? So these students hear these things. They often don't have the context to think about them because they live in a society that has tried to make sure that they don't get that context. Um, And, um, you know, but by the end of that conversation, they did have a more nuanced view of, of things that were happening. And I also, you know, it wasn't that every student had that point of view or not every student was criticizing Angel Reese, but there was criticism of Angel Reese just as there was in the rest of the mainstream. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it is depressing the degree to which, um, uh, the history of racism in this country is sort of unknown to a lot of white college students until they encounter it in class, if they encounter it in class. Um, but it didn't, it didn't surprise me that much. Grad students? Are these grad students or undergrad? These are undergraduate students. Undergraduate students. Is this, are these freshmen, seniors? Where are we talking about in their academic tract? There's a range. There's a range, for sure. It, I think it's an upper-level course, so it's a, um, mostly upperclassmen. Okay, mostly, okay, so we're probably 20s, juniors, we'll say, that type of thing. I do not uh, accept that, like, on either count. Like, that is not logical on either count. Like, for one, most, man, (laughs) Peyton Gendron, who shot up the tops in Buffalo, 18 years old at this time last year, he had on a shirt that said genius. He was very aware of that history that you talk about and spoke with a black person the day beforehand and shared that information, had about an hour and a half conversation, 18. He's not a student at the University of Iowa. If I'm an upper-class 20-year-old white person, no. I think they've been around. They've seen George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all this stuff over the last five years or so. And if they're in your department, they're a college student. They watch the news. They've been paying attention, seeing the same thing that I have for the past few weeks, and they're supposed to be thinking critically about all of this. So that does that. That's the same thing as the folks who said that Dr. Jill Biden was naive in inviting Caitlin Clark and your fellow University of Iowa students, basketball team members, the ladies, inviting them to the White House. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have been hanging out at the White House for, I don't know, decade, more than a decade now, hanging out all that time with the Obamas, now hanging out first lady and everything. You know the procedure. The losers do not come to the White House. Why would that be this time? It wasn't like it was a close game. Maybe I could see if this was a nail biter. That was not the case. What are you, that, mm-hmm. that's not naivete. You know what it is. This is whites and you're a doctor, especially if we got to make it a point of emphasis, like she is the only person at the White House to have a doctor, but no problem. Hey, Dr. Jill, I reject that. That's not ignorance. That's not naivete. That's just call it what it is. 
white supremacy racism. I want that white girl to come up here, not a whole. Oh, man, pause. My goodness. The racial theater of all of this should not be lost. The most watched NCAA women's game in history was between LSU and their starting black five and the University Mm -hmm. of Iowa and their starting white five. That's the and he mentioned Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. That's the most watched basketball game ever. Again, Dr. John Hoberman's term is racial theater. That is always grand. So I'm not surprised at all, even though I didn't realize it. But wow, that game between South Carolina, Dawn Staley and the University of Iowa, that was the third most watched women's game of all time. ESPN Plus said that is the most watched college event ever on that platform white versus black. I am very certain even though I didn't know that until a few days later, I'm sure a whole lot of folks, especially white people they knew that in advance. That probably fed into both why Don Staley had to be asked, so you got these monkeys and bullies down on your Gamecock squad and then why we had all of the, even Jill Biden, I don't think, let's put it this way, do you think Jill Biden, doctor, would have done the same thing if that score same everything, if Iowa wins by 16, whatever it is, do you think she would have invited Angel Reese and LSU to the White House too because it was such a good game? Of course not. Even your that was the other part with your students. I just that doesn't even make sense, Doctor Oates, because if they watched all this and they watched Caitlin Clark's rise, they watched her do the same trash talk. Why would they be so hypocritical? I mean, that would have to be called out flat. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you all say, "Hey, man, I love Caitlin Clark and I hope our school wins"? But get that, 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 that sportsmanship, man. That's it. Don't be put your hand down. Don't be uh, knocking other. But did you all say that? And if not pause right there you don't need to know the history of muhammad ali or jack johnson or joe lewis illiterate tax cheat or any of that that's just wait a minute if i didn't think it was cool for angel reese to do it shouldn't be cool for caitlin clark to do it and if it is why go home and write that's what you all came here to do go ahead if you want to give us a footnote to you know muhammad ali or whatever that's you know extra credit maybe we don't even need that just do some self-reflect because that just doesn't make sense to me. You don't have to know anything about the history of anything. That's just right in your face. Everybody should be able to behave in the same way. If it's sportsmanship, sportsmanship for all. If it's we all going to try, then everybody trash talk. Why would it be different? You, am I making sense, Dr. Oates? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I um, I mean, I, I, I think the way I see racism is uh, informed by there's a the philosopher Charles W. Mills wrote a great book called The Racial Contract, and he talks about racism being a epistemology of ignorance. It is strategic ignorance, um, and it is that strategic is, ignorance is fostered in the education system, but also in everyday social interactions between white people. Uh, even between white people and people of color. Um, there is a lot of, and, and what Mill says this does is to create the, and I'm going to, I'm just paraphrasing here. 
says that it creates the ironic scenario in which white people create a world that they cannot know. So I, I think the ignorance is a huge part of racism and it's manufactured ignorance, you know, systemically manufactured. Um, but it keeps people from seeing things clearly. Um, and the, the, the way that you're seeing them, you know, is, is you're describing what happened, right? And, and the hypocrisy is right on the surface. And there were lots of people on social media and in other venues making that point. But, um, but there's millions and millions of people out there who are, um, deeply, deeply uninformed about, uh, about the history of racism in this country and what it means. Even, even having lived through the Black Lives Matter movement, even having lived through that, right? Because that can be shaped and changed to mean different things for different audiences. And depending what, you know, people hear, they're going to come to different conclusions. And that's, I think, what's so challenging about confronting racism is that it needs to be a real, I mean, it's a systematic problem, so it requires a systematic solution. And that is going to take a long time to fix. Um, and it's going to take a lot of political will to fix. Um, and oh, the hardest We kind of pivoted from our, our question a little bit there. That's, yeah, because I didn't. Yeah, we pivoted way away from our, our question. I do want to point out for our listeners, that is one of the major ways I've concluded that white people practice white supremacy racism deliberately. They cite a non-white person, victim of racism. Frequently, they are deceased, as is the case with Charles W. Mills, who is providing inaccurate information God bless the dead. Charles Mills, the racial contact con, excuse me, the racial contract, December 2009, guest on the cows. That's one of the first times that we played Dixie on the program. And I think I told him the same thing in that discussion. This is not a problem of ignorance. Incorrect word. This is a dedication thing about white supremacy racism. But yes, that is very common. It'll be France Fanon. James Baldwin is a really popular one. Uh, bell hooks but it'll be a deceased non-white person who is saying something that is inaccurate about racism white supremacy fabricated ignorance i don't even know what that means i do remember we had a white guest on the program the metaphor she used metaphor alert she said it's very difficult to wake up someone who is pretending to be sleep you can boil all that down to one word lie but that was what the metaphor she invoked about white ignorance. It is very difficult to wake up someone who is pretending to be sleep, i.e. they are lying. Anywho, our caller, uh, Irie, did you have a question for Dr. Oates? Uh, oh, she dropped. See, got me. Back. Oh, there she is. Nope, she did drop out. Oh, well, our caller at 9029, did you have a question for Dr. Oates? Uh, greetings, guests. Greetings, the callers and listeners. And um, uh, thank you, Professor, for coming on. A mm-hmm. question is: um, As a non-white parent, what would you suggest for children, though, for of of our offspring, as far as getting them into sports? Would you suggest any sports in particular, or not suggest them getting into any sports 
such as mainstream sports, such as basketball, football, et cetera. Just like to hear your opinion on that. Uh, I have a child myself, um, obviously a white child. Um, her um, her uh, experience with sports has been really instructive to me. Um, I, you know, I played sports as a kid, and uh, my experience was uh, much more sort of recreational. Um, I played sports in high school, but you know, I was not a great athlete, and. I didn't um, join youth traveling teams or anything like that. Um, now that's almost a prerequisite in some places to play varsity sports in, in high school. Um, I find that really troubling because it introduces a, a way of playing sports that is very, that's very, very competitive. It's really restrictive for a lot of families because it's, it costs a lot of money. Um, and and as far as you know like w- what their experience in those in those sports might be um it can be really it can be really difficult but um uh and for example my daughter you know was sort of turned off by the hyper competitiveness i don't know what i would suggest in terms of you know your particular situation or or anyone anywhere out there listening um you know circumstances are different in different places um I would not allow my child to play football, um, tackle football anyway. Um, she's a girl, so it's sort of a, a moot point. But um, if I had a son, I, that would be my answer too. Um, there's a lot of a lot that we know now about sports, including soccer, including football, um, and their links to head injury, which I think are not really being taken seriously. So. Um, that's a big problem. But for, for non-white athletes, though, I would say look for non-white mentors where you can find them. Um, it can be difficult depending on your community, but um, I, I still believe that there's a lot of wonderful things that people can get out of sports, but um, it's harder than it used to be in my experience. <laughs> Pause really quick. Just our caller, 9029. He said that's some I don't think that's something we know talking about uh brain damage, CTE and tackle football dangers. We have sparkled about the last since DeMar Hamlin almost died on the field, Buffalo Bills. Mm-hmm. We have sparkled with that one. That's one that I can say based on the work of Dr. Jessica Wallace down in Alabama where they do the whole lot bringing the players in mm, the meat mark, mm. uh, but Dr. Jessica Wallace the University of Alabama roll tide she was mm-hmm. with us on Super Bowl Sunday her research white parents white coaches and white tackle football players are more informed about the dangers from concussions tackle football than black parents black coaches and black players and equally important black parents are overconfident about their knowledge of concussions and their dangers even though they are less informed than white parents that's one of the most important bits of information that I think got shared 
on the cows in the last six months. That's because he said he wouldn't allow his son to play football, tackle football. Hmm. Mm Hmm. Hmm. Did you have another question, our caller, 9029? Uh, I just wanted to just a little bit add on to something. Is question? We're not speechifying. We're not speechifying. Did you have a question? No, no, not no, not at all, sir. Just going into the question: Would you allow your child, if you are a non-white parent, knowing what you know in regards to racism and white supremacy in the sports field, would you allow them to still play? And that's what I was wondering. It's a hard question. I I think I would. Um, but I think I would be as careful as I could about choosing the right environment. Um, because I, as I said before, I, I think that children get a lot out of sports. I think that it's, it's a really powerful, um, it's a really powerful tool for self-development, um, in the United States at, even at the high school level, as we see with these trans athletes debates, we're sort of very focused on winning and losing, but uh, you know the lessons that people carry away from sports transcend that so so much. So I think that you know I would want my you know if my child were interested in playing sports um, to find those opportunities. But I think I would just try to be as careful as I could about what those opportunities were, and um, especially if you know I had a child who was interested in elite athletics, was a great athlete and was thinking of pursuing it at the college or pro level, I think my anxiety would rise. (laughs) Um, I don't think, you know, it's not my place to say you can't do it, but um, I would be, I would be anxious (laughs) given what I know about, you know, um, and, and what most of us know about, you know, the, the, the really serious harm that can befall athletes in, uh, in those circumstances. But as far as recreation goes, I, 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 I would definitely encourage it under the right circumstances. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for your answer. Um, Thank Thank you again. Much obliged. I want to make sure I get this in. We want to take up your whole evening, but my goodness, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing also wrote about racism, white supremacy. She was a guest on our program many times. She wrote specifically about racism and sports and given some of the analysis that you did, I wanted to hear what you, what you had to say. If you think this is logical, what she writes, this is, she has a whole chapter uh, on ball games as symbols. Uh, She writes this on page 80. uh, Another point that effectively reveals the relationship of ball games to the white psyche and emphasizes the extent to which balls are a symbolic preoccupation is the reference in the white supremacy system culture to the act of sexual intercourse as balling the (laughs) ball fantasy in the white psyche can best be stated as if the balls can be controlled on the court or the playing field or through ownership keywording some of your research they can also be owned and controlled in real life 
it is little wonder that in contrast to black males, white males play ball games as though they are a matter of life and death and not as though they are simply to be enjoyed. When the whites lose control mm. of the balls, whiteness becomes extinct. I'm just skipping down a few paragraphs. She continues. Mm. Whoop, whoop, whoop. The importance of games utilizing brown balls in the white supremacy culture is of special interest. The most important of these games are football and basketball. Is it only an accident that black males, now that they have been allowed to play, allowed to play, have become the most outstanding players in these sports nationally and internationally? Is it only an accident that in the game of football, the field general, the quarterback, almost always must be white? no matter the color of the other players. And, of course, the owners always must be white so that no matter who wins or who is the star, the white owners control the big brown balls and who gets to play with them. Before I get your thoughts to see, does that make sense or even jive with some of your research? I said, Gus T, write down who you think are the most like popular stars in the NFL are right now. So I put my list down and I said, wow, I got Tom Brady, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, mm. Cowbell, mm. Aaron Rodgers, Lamar Jackson. I didn't go Google it or research. I just let me see if I could pick these are the people that I think are the most popular. I said, dang, I got one, two, three individuals classified as white. I got Patrick Mahomes who has one white parent. Talked about that with your class. And I got Lamar Jackson who is not even on a team right now and seems like he can't exactly get a contract. Like, hmm. What did you, mm-hmm. Dr. Welsing, what I just read, does that, in terms of ball games as symbols? Yeah, that's fascinating. I would not come across that before, but uh, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Um, I mean, I, I, I do agree that the, um, it is kind of amazing the disparity between the players on the field or the court and the people who own the teams. And um, to a lesser degree, but not much of a lesser degree, the people who coach the teams. Um, so the, the the dynamics of control are just really there for people to see. Um, but again, you know, I I know you disagree with me about this, but I I think that it's it's really telling that that receives almost no commentary. I mean, it, it, every once in a while, people will talk about that disparity, but usually it just passes without comment. And I think it's important that it that it does pass without comment. I think that's part of the reason why the um, sort of uh, attitudes of racism that can erupt in sport and do so so frequently um, can be sort of nurtured in that way, if you will. 
how could I, I'm so remiss, today is Easter Sunday, but this is the Masters weekend. I said yesterday, I think you could put a wager, they're going to have to change the name of that tournament, and that is going to be the ugliest, best battle, but I suspect by the time we get to the year 2100, it is going to be called something else. If I had to wager, like how long, I would put it at... Over under at twenty fifty. Over under at twenty fifty. I would take the over. I would take the over. But I bet before twenty one hundred, it is going to be something other than the Masters that we all look forward to. And Tiger Woods will come out and oh, I remember the good old days, and nobody called it or nobody even said anything about it. It just passed without notice. That we have a golf tournament where we didn't even allow niggers to be caddies for a really long time much less play much less even tiger woods and it's called the masters but anyway uh and that's in her book as well small white balls where she taught control Ugh. uh i will nab our last couple callers so we can let you depart they dialed in late maybe they have a caitlin clark question before i do do mm-hmm. who do you think is more informed about the daily operations, even the information about Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, all of that, uh, and all areas of people activity. Who do you think is more informed about racism, white supremacy as a system, what it is, how it works locally, nationally, globally? Do you think people classified as white, like yourself and your students, do you think white people are more informed about what that system is and how it works? Or do you think non-white people are more informed about what racism, white supremacy is, and how it works? Definitely the latter. Non-white people have been absolutely instrumental to my own education about it. Um, I, you know, the, the, the literature that I draw on in my in my scholarship and just the the interpersonal interactions that I've had, um, the the most trenchant insights on race almost invariably come from people of color. Fascinating. You you yourself you are a white man. You teach about this and write about this. You are informed about racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works as a global system. I mean, I have a point of view on it, for sure. Um, I've studied it for a long time. Um, but, you know, I don't have the same lived experience as uh, people of color. And that experience informs a lot of knowledge um, that uh, can't, can't be gleaned from books and articles. This is another one where we didn't get an answer to the question. So, again... You are classified as a white man, but you teach about, write about, study racism, white supremacy. So you are informed about racism, yes? Oh, yes, I think so. Uh, I don't think I have the same level of, you know, uh, knowledge about the system. I don't have a personal knowledge about the system, but I think there are other ways to learn about it. Hmm. One would learn about racism, white supremacy, practicing racism, yes? Uh, yeah, 
suppose they, I suppose you could. Okay. Hmm. You suppose you could. So, if I go out and I conduct a lynching, I know about lynchings, right? Um. I mean, yeah, I suppose you would know something about lynching, but that experience would be different, of course, from the position of the person who's the dominant, like in inflicting the harm. Um, so, I think it would be it would be a different situation for sure. Right, but Very I would have the example. lived experience of carrying out a lynching, so I'm not ignorant about that. I've lived it, right? That's what you just said, lived experience. So. Right, you would you would not be ignorant. That's be one way that you could learn about it, correct? I think you'd be learning the wrong things about it. Um, I think you'd be learning how to perpetuate racism rather than how to uh, unmask and contest it. Just pointing out uh, for listeners, this patterns where we have white people who write books about. They're paid to teach about racism, white supremacy, but they are reluctant to just say, yes, I am informed about racism. Even when no comparison has been asked, you're more informed than not. None of that. Just you're informed about racism. Very reluctant to just. Yes. I even after they've talked to us about Jack Johnson and Joe Lewis in great detail. Fascinating. Uh, Our caller. 2879. Did you have a question for Dr. Oates, who, yes, is informed about racism, white supremacy? Did you have a question? 2879. Excuse me, 2979. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, I can hear you. Greetings, guests. Uh, greetings to the callers and greetings, Dr. Oates. Uh, thank you for spending some of your time with us. I found that with conversation discussion to be very informative uh my i have a i have a couple of questions uh maybe like three or four uh, but i'll try to get through them very quickly my my first question was kind of a follow-up to gus's question about who is more informed about the system of racism white supremacy uh i would like to know in your view who is responsible for creating implementing expanding maintaining and refining the system of racism, white supremacy, people classified as white or people classified as non-white people classified as white. Okay. But, but non-white people are more informed about the system of racism, white supremacy. What I was trying to say is that I think that non-white people have a lived experience with racism that white people don't experience in the same way. And so if one wants to dismantle racism, um, then uh, there is a, a different form of knowledge that comes from living in a racist culture as a person of color that I can't access. I can read a lot of books about it. I can read a lot of articles about it. Um, I do feel like I know a lot about white supremacy, but I don't feel like I have that lived experience and cannot pretend to have it. I see. Um, 
it just sounds to me like you're kind of answering a different question when it comes to who's more informed. Um, whoever, whoever, whoever is responsible for creating or implementing something, I, I think they would be most informed about how to stop, stop that or to change it or do something about it. Uh, my, my next question, uh, this one's about more of a clarification about some of your comments tonight. Uh, so in your view, white people are, I guess, deliberately ignorant about racism, white supremacy? White people live in a culture that um, is careful to obscure racism, to make it hard to see, to make it hard to understand. Um, and uh, so that is what I'm trying to say. Um, so who, culture, who? Oh, sorry, sorry. If I could just add something to that, and that culture is controlled by and large by white people. Just so I understand this correctly, mm -hmm. I'm gonna try and repeat it back. White people are responsible for making sure that other white people remain ignorant about racism. Right. Okay. That's okay. Okay, so to me that sounds like white people are informed about racism. They are deliberately practicing racism. Is that is that accurate? I think that a lot of people a lot of white people are enacting racist scripts, which they themselves don't write, and the alternatives to which they don't know about. They don't know the context in many cases about uh, the judgments they're drawing on an individual incident like the Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark incident, for example. Um, but they are, uh, which is not to say they're not responsible for it. They are responsible for it, but they are... Um, in many cases, most cases even, I would say, um, ignorant by design. Not to say their own choice, but in some cases it is their own choice. In many cases it is their own choice. But one can even want to know about uh, the racist history of the United States and have a very difficult time learning it. For example, in the state of Florida in the future. Okay, You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. <laughs> I'm sorry, what did, I didn't catch that. Uh, agreed. Um, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much. I have one, one last question. I think ultimately it comes down to white people needing to stop practicing racism. And, and those views tend to not make sure that that happens. Uh, my last question is, if non-white people, uh, since the conversation has largely been about sports tonight, uh, if non-white people were to tomorrow, let's say tomorrow, said mm -hmm. we are going to cease playing, participating in any sports-related activities, NFL, NBA, um, uh, whatever other sports, uh, what, in your view, how would the majority of white people respond to that? Uh, with panic, probably. 
I mean, the people who the white people who own the leagues would be uh, very worried about their future financial prospects. Um, fans would be furious and worried about the future of their entertainment choices. Um, I think there's a lot of power that athletes hold, and I think that they are beginning to realize that power. They're starting to exercise that power in real ways, and it's kind of thrilling to see. Uh, my my last comment. This is really the kicker. Uh, do you think it would get it would make white people stop practicing racism, white supremacy? And that's my last question for the night. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I doubt it, um, but it would be a huge disruption to people's lives. It might cause them to ask some questions. It might cause them to think about some things they hadn't thought about before, but. Uh, I don't. I I think it would take more than that. Hmm. Much obliged, sir. Retired firefighter oh, DeSantis Land, Florida. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Doctor Oates? Greetings, everyone. Uh, Mr. James Nathaniel Brown uh, to the guests. Uh, and primarily white males' sexual relationship with Mr. Brown when he was a football player in the National Football League and a entertainer labeled as an actor. I forgot the, the sexual term uh, that is called, but uh, there was a white male who stated that I wish I was Jim Brown for uh, 20 minutes uh, with uh, uh, a, a female. And uh, uh, there was a uh, another, well, as far as when he was an actor, he did a lot of scenes, sexual scenes, with white females. Uh, uh, could you speak on that for, um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what should we know about it? Uh, in regards to, uh, from a standpoint of uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, sexual desires through the image of a black male. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a, that's a huge theme. Um, There's whole genres of pornography that are built on that fantasy of, white men wanting to imagine themselves in a black man's body having sex with a woman. Um, I think that that's very prevalent. Um, I think it's a very difficult thing for most people to talk about (laughs) or acknowledge. So, you know, most of it kind of passes without comment. But, you know, the Jim Brown thing, the example you provide is really fascinating because, you know, that's happening in the mid to late 1960s. So it's a, uh, it was truly, you know, a a groundbreaking thing that he was doing there. But, um, you know, what the audience wanted out of that experience, out of that transgression was, uh, is much bigger than Jim Brown. But yeah, it's a really fascinating question. 
just pulling in uh, some of my his research quick. before you get to your last question. I'm going to let you get it in. I just want to, because this is right to what he wrote about in the erotic gaze in the NFL, which we talked about. Jim Brown, one of the best football players ever. So he writes, this is on page bottom of page 11. He writes, the erotic black male body has pers- oh, oh, mm-hmm. I'll even back up. <laughs> he quotes, uh, the careful stories buyers used to explain their actions were revealing denials of something everybody knew that for white men examining slaves, searching out hidden body parts, running hands over limbs, massaging abdomens and articulating pelvic joints, probing wounds and scars with fingers was erotic. The erotic black male body has persisted well beyond formal slavery. Robin Wiegman notes this fiercely denied interracial homoerotic desire in the practice of lynching, specifically in the widespread practice of publicly castrating the lynched man. By thus phallicizing the black male body, this ritual castration displays the anxieties and contradictions underlying the logic and disciplinary practices of white supremacy in reducing the black male to the body and further to the penis itself white masculinity betrays a simultaneous desire for and disavowal of the black male's phallic inscription end quote Wigman sees this focus on the black penis as significant she even cites evidence that lynchers frequently divided the penis among themselves as keepsakes though it though through it one encounters a sadistic enactment of the homoerotic at the very moment of its most extreme disavowal thank you for the intrusion retired firefighter Yes, sir. My last question uh, is based on uh, what you uh, reported on who's more knowledgeable about about racism, white supremacy. Uh, If you are correct about, as you determine you use people of color uh, uh, to that question, my question is, well, how come we haven't solved or neutralized the problem of white people mistreating people who are not white. That's a great question. That is, that's the key question there. I think it's because of power and who holds the levers of power. Um, there are a lot of people in this country who are trying to fight against white supremacy, but by and large, those who hold the levers of power in the United States, in the government, in media, in many other, in sports, in many other industries, are not interested in those things. Um, and so they put their knowledge to, to other uses, to the use of maintaining it, of building structures that will ensure its reproduction. Um, but, uh, so I think it's a question of power. Just like to, and I've tried to put it in the question, uh, you said this country, uh, 
do you think racism, white supremacy is a global problem? I do. Okay. Thank you. Gave us He gave us the uh, example of France and the contrast, and they got the black people out in the suburbs there. And different seasoning to the racism, depending on where you are in the universe. Man, I totally forgot. Uh... I told listeners after I watched the game, and I did watch the championship game, uh, Caitlin Clark, Angel Reese, I was watching it live and all the mayhem unfold live stream. But I said, oh yeah, I've been seeing the Hawkeyes in the news this year way before Caitlin Clark. Why did I see mm-hmm. them? Oh, the football team, they had that $4 million settlement for racism, <laughs> white supremacy. That's, oh my God kind of slob are you to let him slide and not even ask did that come up in the in the class did they discuss what these young black males charged even for some of our listeners uh former iowa football players still seeking closure for racism within program i'll just give you mm-hmm. a, a teaspoon of what he said he said entering the draft each player was assigned a point value based on coaches evaluations of their behavior during the first few weeks of the offseason. The squad gathered in a circle as the captains, who, like the team itself, were predominantly white, began to choose their guys. The pool of players dwindled until only black players with negative point values were left in the middle. I would be last every single time, said Wadley, one of 13 former Iowa players, suing several football coaches and the University for Racial Discrimination. He left Iowa in 2017 as one of the most productive running backs in school history. You can just imagine that feeling, being a guy that's contributing to a lot of the team wins and being last. And it's not due to anything with my performance or my work ethic. Ah. That's been so slovenly of me. Have you all talked about this in your your class? Oh yes. What has been said? Yeah, not not. Uh, I think people are pretty embarrassed about what happened with the football program. The football program is a real point of pride among a lot of Iowans, not just University of Iowa students. Um, it's uh. I mean, what I've heard in class has been mostly supportive of the players, um, and uh, there's been some uh, calls to do something about the leadership of the athletic department because there was this incident, there was a Title IX suit as well, that uh, a, a sexual discrimination suit that um, the university lost as well that was also connected to the uh, athletic department. So um, there have been a lot of incidents that I think uh, fans of the football program at the university and beyond find really embarrassing um, that this could happen. There's a lot of students who also made the point that, you know, Iowa's, if Iowa wants to have a competitive football team, they can't also be a place that makes uh, national news for being a hostile environment for African-American athletes. Like, that's just not a good strategy. You know, if you don't care anything about racial justice, but only care about having a winning football team. Um, so, 
Um, that's mostly what the, the tenor of what they said. Some of the victims, the black athletes, they are seeking reparations for the harm that they endured. Uh, are they your students? Did they seem like they would be supportive of them getting reparations? Um, you mean beyond the $4 million lawsuit? I'm not sure. Right. I have to see if there's going to be more to it, but that's what's written. This isn't the, uh, let's see, this is the end of 2021. So that $4 million, they, mm-hmm. do they did they seem supportive of the $4 million? I guess we'll start there. Yeah, I think they did. Hmm, okay. We'll see if they get anything more for all of their troubles. But yeah, I had just seen that. Like, man, that was way before all the uh, <laughs> Caitlin Clark. I, uh, mm, mm, just amazing. Even, even they said that they were subjected to different forms of discipline. Said, wow, that, that almost sounds like the Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark thing all over again, where it seems like we got some hypocrisy about how people are going to be adjudicated like just and put a nice bow on it that's the sort of thing that should be included we talk about participation in sports like hey might end up with this sort of situation that's something to think about i think dr Oates said he would cringe if they were talking more professional like hey this is the grooming for the professional as they say so it's not Mm -hmm. just iowa unfortunately i don't think unless i've been Misinformed. I think they had protests at the University of Missouri around the same time as uh, Michael Brown Jr., unless my memory is bad. Anywho, uh, much obliged, Dr. Oates. It has been uh, a hoot. feel like I learned quite a bit um, discussing the reports and what have you and hearing someone right there in the midst of everything. Uh, thanks so much for sharing a bit of your, I guess, Easter Sunday Masters weekend uh, to discuss all these fascinating components of racism. Uh, you said that the new book, what is it, the, the new project supposed to be about again? It's a cultural history of playground basketball. <clears throat> so the big question I have is about how playground basketball becomes, uh, you know, it, which is begins as a, a community based grassroots um uh, activity in mostly in segregated black urban communities becomes mainstream entertainment to the point that, you know, at the Olympics they have this sort of three on three, uh, uh, tournament with, you know, hip hop artists spinning records in the, in the background and <laughs> all the trappings of the, of the urban playground court. So that's, my fault, my fault. Yeah. Trappings. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, before I let you go, is uh, the book that you plug for us, Blackball, same subject matter, the history of racism in the indie world. Yeah, racism, I was going to say marketing and what have you, but I mean, really, if it's Blackball, it's the history of racism in the NBA, 1970s, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's era. Uh, the author, Teresa Runstetler, is she white or non-white? I think she's mixed race. Do you think she'd be accepted as white? I think you'd have to ask her. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. I'll add, you see people, do you think she would be accepted as a white person? Like, that's reasonable. reasonable. They have racial classifications. You're a white man, and you're supposed to be able to pick out racial classifications. Do you think she'd be accepted as white? 
No, I don't. Okay. Thanks, Edith. <sighs> Much obliged. Dr. Thomas P. Oates has been a hoot. Uh, I will have to look out his project, Playground Basketball, and then I'll leave it at the title alone. Dr. Welsing would have a big smile. Black Ball. <laughs> Check out that one as well. Thank you so much for the information, and uh, we'll keep an eye out for the the new Playground book, sir. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation. For sure, for sure. Context of White Supremacy, again, our guest today, University of Iowa, Associate Professor in the School of Journalism and Communication, Dr. Thomas P. Oates. Much obliged. Uh, We will speak soon, sir. Wow. Just wow. Good evening. Good evening. Wow. Just wow. Uh, White ball game, right? Haven't we been talking about white ball games forever? We're reading soccer right now in Brazil. When he gave the international example, I thought he was going to mention Brazil for a moment there. But either. And even with that, he brought up Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling. That's going right into World War II. They fought twice. Uh, Tax cheat illiterate Joe Lewis anyway context of white supremacy listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com You'll see the PayPal button top right corner. And then beneath that links for Venmo, Cash App, PayPal. Enormous gratitude to all the folks who have kept us on the air 14 years plus at this point. Hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy. I will say, man, this program today this is not just a ooh talk about entertainment and sports and all that please please hopefully that's evident there's a reason that I didn't start with the Caitlin Clark Angel Reese controversy with the championship game that was deliberately burying the lead why I try to look be thorough we have a guest on the program like whoa this guy's written a lot about racism let's see what he's written about I thought that was important as well. Homoeroticism. Oh my God. That alone would be reason. I don't think I want to have my child participate in all of this. He even talks about the marketing of Madden. Didn't have time to get to that report. He has a whole report about that as well. Uh, these white people with white John Madden got his white coach. That's another one of the joke too. I think it's what do you call one white guy with 40 black guys or how many other people I think it's 50 black guys because that's on the football so it'd be one white guy with 50 black guys coach see the one before I gave was Tom Brady one black guy one white guy with 10 black guys quarterback see white man is always in charge that's the ball games Dr. Francis Cress Welsing but I program like this I started with the other information to give a broader foundation if you will context of white supremacy racism to then think about the Caitlin Clark Angel Reese situation 
Plus, this is always to investigate, you know, explore how white people think and talk about racism. Uh, but one, you'll get a lot more information out of today's program if you understand what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. We're all still learning, right? But the more you understand it, that I think you'll get more out of it. Two, if you have already heard the programs that I started with, so I started with John Shaft, Cal Catherine Massey Book Club. We read John Shaft, which is written. I should have asked that. Oh, my bad. John Shaft, like John is the person who hires the sex worker, prostitute. John Shaft, we heard all that about the black penis written by a white man all of that all those books and films that went on for a half century written the mind of a white man Ernest Tidyman he won an NAACP image award for writing John Shaft the long history of white homoeroticism but that's in the book club Catherine Massey also in the Catherine Massey book club, Vincent Woodard, the delectable Negro human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. Top three gusty all time. Also top ten gusty all time, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, the man not race class genre and the dilemmas of black manhood somebody asked me gusty what are your top 10 books and i was almost flipping and answering because i said my top 10 books almost all of them are in the book club already you wouldn't even have to listen you could just scroll through and i sent them the link to do so you could go to any of the sites where they have a search engine for the Cows podcast specifically, like Podchaser, Stitcher. There are others, those are just the first two that came to mind, but they have a specific search engine for the Cows. Put in club, all the book club programs will pop up. You don't even have to listen. You can just look at what we've read and then go to the library and read them yourself. But we've read like almost everything that's in my top 10 and I mention them all the time like right now but Dr. Curry also in the Cows book club and I think we read everything that I just mentioned within the last six years not in the book club Thomas A. Foster Rethinking Rufus should I give the full title for that one we should give the full title for that one Rethinking Rufus let's see moved off the page The full title, Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men. He was a guest on the Cows, Thomas A. Foster, back in December of 2019. I posted that link uh, earlier today. I think I mentioned that already. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) Dr. Gerald Horn, The Bitter Sweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He was on the program in 2001. Specifically, he talked about, and it's footnoted, where 
Howard Cosell sexually propositioned heavyweight boxing champion Larry Holmes. I almost fell out of my chair. And he went into detail, he said, about how white men strategically put themselves in position where they can sexually exploit black males, including black boys. And he talked about his high school basketball team where it came out years later that the white male basketball coach was sexually raping the black boys on the basketball team. He even said he was putting that together as he was talking to us 2021. And Dr. John Hoberman, Darwin's Athletes, How Sport Damaged Black America. He was on the cows more than once, but to talk about that book specifically, which I do reference a lot. That was way back in 2009. Stand by your work. But I mentioned all of those. You will get a lot more out of today's broadcast if you have read those books or heard some of the discussions that we've had about those books in terms of the Sex, white men's sexual exploits with non-white males, black males specifically, uh, and some of the reasons we should be really motivated to solve this problem. I also want to pinpoint it as well, way back at the beginning, we took all that time to get into the definition that is so important. We non-white people have been conditioned. In fact, he said white people obfuscate racism I use that as an acronym I've been saying that for years now Moo. they minimize they obfuscate and they omit I said that for years uh, and this is done deliberately uh, to keep us confused where we cannot connect the dots as Dr. Welsing used to say but I've said that and he said it specifically today Obvious, white people obfuscate they obfuscate they make it difficult uh, for you to even access information when he came out and said what's inaccurate about my definition is that you got non-white people who have the values common sense of white supremacy racism support the system like old Clarence Thomas that's how we have been conditioned it's not white people they deal with them like we got to deal that no count Clarence Thomas. Look at him going around here getting vacations. Aren't you sick of Clarence Thomas? I'm sick. Who is with me? And old Al Sharpton. We got a whole bunch of these old non-white people around here. Been keeping the system going. That's how, isn't that the way that we talk? Why is that? It's, that's why. That's the way that we get. No, 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 no. You don't give a definition of racism that focuses specifically and exclusively on white people as the perpetrator's problem. No, 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 no. You don't do that. Whoa. You bad as Angel Reese. Whoa. Clarence Thomas, you, you put him in there. You know Clarence Thomas. Now, do you know some non-white people who do not support white supremacy racism? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Malcolm X. El Haj El Haj Malik Shabazz in the year of our Lord 2023 he has been deceased almost 60 years 
are there some benefits? I mean, hey, <laughs> we did hear about the organ thieves, the body snatchers. I mean, hey, just because you're in the ground, <laughs> we go take your eyeballs, take your organs, you know. You still support the system of white supremacy racism. Harriet A. Washington told us that. That doesn't mean <laughs> you have escaped our clutches. That notwithstanding. Aren't there some live people now? Really? To have to get all that. Oh, I guess, yeah. You're spending money and things. You got a job and things. You work at the University of South Carolina for the Gamecocks. You support the system of white supremacy racism. That's all of us. That's all of us. We're victims. That's what victims do. You're on the plantation. You're a slave. That's what victims do. But to have a white man. We're going to get off on Easter Sunday talking about Clarence Thomas. And again, because of the way we've been conditioned, all that name calling and coon this and sell out that. I told we just heard that yesterday talking about 13 year old Leonard Clark, who was beaten into a coma in Chicago 1997 by white teenagers but we got to talk about sellout black pastors and cursed at them (sighs) the people who are most to blame are classified as white ask that question next time so is Clarence Thomas most to blame? Oh, the people classified as white. I put that in the form of a question next time. But I mean, that is, I mean, on Easter Sunday. We went out and did the Easter egg hunt today. Had some chocolate on Dr. Welsing's name. We had Dr. Welsing on the cows on Easter Sunday, 2010. We went out and went through all these rituals, went to church for the first time. And God knows when. No football, so they didn't have any competition today. And come out and put put disparage old Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, in such a manner. You don't talk about my black brother like that. I got you. What is that? I got your back, uh, brother, black brother, Clarence Thomas. And then, yes, yes, they want to bring that up. Brother Clarence Thomas wrote that down, said, yeah, the, what's, what's one of your childhood memories? A, B, C, America's blackest child. Hmm. 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 Let's see. Uh, folks who were with us, commentary, thoughts on what they heard from Dr. Thomas Oates, white man, suspected racist. Uh, let's see. Folks with, I don't think we missed anybody totally. Folks who have a hand up, commentary to share. Yes, sir. Not, uh, zero three five six. Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus. Um, I found the broadcast um, highly constructive. Uh, Gus was very refined his practice of racism, in my opinion. Um, suspected um, use of words as an instructor. Um, I find on your program. Um, the patterns, as usual, of instructors, they don't really want to say too much because they usually have to go back to class sometimes. Um, he was <clears throat> very stubborn on your definition 
Um, I almost thought that he might have, you know, left early sometimes, you know, when the definition doesn't work, so they're, you know, they don't want to agree sometimes they'll leave the program early. Um, I found that, you know, the same pattern um, where the focus is on whites and their homo erotic, or just the, just racism in general. And they'll always go back to either a black author, they'll quote, you know, their best black friend, um, he had the audacity to mention uh, Malcolm X, who was um, assassinated um, by racism, white supremacy on Easter Sunday. I found that highly um, <laughs> interesting um, and, uh, you know, blatant, you know, just, just you know, how you kept saying rituals, you know, the ritual of sports. Um, I found the question highly constructive, you know, what would whites do if blacks stopped participating in sports? Uh I think he answered it accurately. The same thing that I concluded that they would go insane because they, you know, they need that, 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 well, I'm sorry to be long winded, but, you know, just collectively Negro all the way, um, just their lust to see black bodies, his uses of the word lean. Um, I had to change my questions that I had first written down, um, because just how he kept, um, framing it with sports and everything. He reminded me of the one guy you had on that was talking about, um, the Seattle Supersonics, how he did the year tour with him, and he was, you know, he couldn't have, you know, get off with his wife unless he thought about Gary Payton. He reminded me of him. And Joe Adams saved white people. Thank you for your time, sir. That's so funny. The fella, I have to look, get his name really quick, uh, who wrote that book about the Seattle Supersonics. We don't have that team anymore. Uh, the Seattle Supersonics, he wrote a whole book. Uh, about his year following the Seattle Supersonics when Gary Payton and Sean Kemp were on the team. And uh, he talked about the homo. He would go watch Gary Payton, who he thought was just the coolest black dude in the world. And he would watch him and all of his cool generations and the way that he talked and everything. And then he would go have sex with, he even talked, I think he has a passage in the book where he talks about feeling like less than a man in comparison to Gary Payton and then his wife said something to try to boost his wounded white masculinity. And then they hopped in bed and had sexual intercourse. And it's about as graphic as, um, you know, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Strap word usage. Strapping uh, flavor. Oh, my gosh. Man, oh, man. And all of that is important. Exactly. That sort of word usage. It suggests that. The practice of racism is unenjoyable, delicious, savory experience for individuals classified as white. Yes. He said a different, he didn't say a different way of practicing racism. He said they have a different flavor. You know, that, that's, uh, yeah, they season the Negro a little different. <laughs> Amazing. Other folks have uh, commentary they want to practice. Oh, excuse me. I have commentary they want to share. Practice. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I, I, Based on my question, my second question to him, and he stated power. Uh, uh, is it me or uh, by being under the assumption that he was talking about some sort of power uh, where it didn't require into any uh, mental effort 
uh, a knowledgeable effort about what one is doing uh, and having a strategy uh, that's called the white code uh, to be able to accomplish uh, something that is called accurately, I think, racism, white supremacy. Uh, do, do you recall when he, say, he stated the term power is the difference? Yes, I believe so. I think that was when you asked him about why non-white people, if we're more informed, why haven't we solved this problem? And he said power, uh, access to the, I think the metaphor he invoked was access to the levers of power. But he did use the word, he didn't say privilege, he said power. And he even used that tacky term too. He said that no count, niggas like Clarence Thomas help keep white privilege. I'm like, oh my God. Uh, but yes, I think that's what he invoked, power, that white people have power or and or non-white people's lack of power is why we have not solved this problem in spite of our great knowledge allegedly hmm. well I mean I, I would I would figure with that term that uh term of power it had, it it required a uh first of all uh, an interest uh that uh in order to uh uh even start on the task of accomplishing power to be able to uh, harm people based on color. Uh, whereas non-white people who are rich classified as black, uh, I don't even think that we focus on the issue of racism and white supremacy. And that has probably one of the reasons, or if not probably the, the biggest reason on why we haven't solved it, because we haven't really put our time and energy towards it. But uh, that was interesting for him to say power after uh, he stated at the same time that uh, non-white people, well, he, he didn't use the term non-white, but he used the term people of color uh, have not uh, 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 are more frequent with the the problem part of racism, white supremacy uh, into answering your question. But anyway, just a thought. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, and I, I, I would agree strongly, non-white people, uh, that is not our priority. White people are most to blame for that, too, because they kill those of us who do get interested in that, a la El Haj Malik Shabazz. And then yes, they right. do what we heard from our guest, obfuscate, confuse us so that we don't have the correct focus which is kind of a takeaway point that I got from reading because he does have a lot of writing about football and racism and all that like man I would not have my child in this at all like we have time and energy we do not have time to sit around and waste on Madden football like all the hours and hours that we waste whereas exactly what Mr. Fuller said they put their fun in with they do all of this this is Oh yes, I'm supposed to be in charge of these negras. Yes, that's what's important. That's always on my mind. Yes, yeah. I'm not just frivolously wasting time about some ball. This has, Dr. Welsing, this has substantially greater significance. Man, you even got it named a game about black males running around on the field named after a white man. And it game changed thing. It's not even Thanksgiving anymore. It's Madden Day. Like, come on. Uh, did we miss anybody comments here? They wanted to make sure that they got in. 
Yeah, that's what I thought. We'll work it out. Uh, appreciate. I just I was just um, thrown off a little bit because I'm listening to him talk about racism and how um, it permeates through all of sports and almost every aspect. So I asked him in regards to having children, having your offspring play, would you? And I'm surprised that he even answered like, yeah, you know, still I would allow it because, and I'm just like, nah, if you, would you, as a, as a white man, if you knew that it was going to be some, you know, black people that are like practicing racism against your child, you would allow it? Knowing exactly what you know, based on all the history and all the research you've done, you would allow it? I just couldn't believe that one. I I got thrown off by that one. You know, I asked because I knew the answer, but I just wanted to hear what he would say, which is lie, basically. I knew my line. Much obliged, sir. Dr. Jessica Wallace, uh, before we get our caller, thank you for your patience. Dr. Jessica Wallace, she was with us on Super Bowl Sunday, February of this year. Is she all this work on black people, black players, black coaches, and black parents with regards to tackle football are less informed about concussions than their white counterparts and we asked her about all these dangers and everything associated with tackle football and how it impacts your brain we asked her like hey uh you still watch football she said oh yeah i'm rooting for uh black with jalen hurts philadelphia i'm rooting for him right now i'm watching the game you all messing up my sunday viewing (laughs) like like what wait a minute do you why do you do you think people should still play and she said, under 14, I have more reservations about it because your brain is still developing and all. But over 14, like, hey, it's a way you can get exercise. And it's the only thing for, like, I think we had some of the same, you know, what? <laughs> all that you know? Like, really? Hmm. Let's see. Uh, thank you for your patience, mm-hmm. caller. Greetings. Uh, I, I remember that, that show uh, asking, asking that guest that. And I, I remember being... Uh, pretty, I guess, mind blown by by the response. So, uh, yeah. So the the, the caller tonight, I thought the discussion was ex- extremely constructive. I found it to be extremely interesting. Uh, just just with everything that's going on, uh, and kind of following what retired firefighter was was saying about you know the, about power and his response to that to that question. Uh, I thought maybe a, a, uh, something I thought maybe about asking white people would be uh, what their thoughts on what their thoughts were on whether or not black people are interested in solving the problem, and and, what, and depending on the answer, who's responsible for that? You know, uh, I in my view, I don't believe most non-white people are are interested in solving the problem, uh, ma- mainly mostly because of the conditioning under a system of racism and white supremacy. Uh, with the question, who, who is more informed, um, uh, t- typical response, uh, what I realized after hearing him and kind of asking my question about it was he was attempting, and not really attempting, but he was answering a different question, a question that he, I guess, made up, uh, talking about lived experiences, uh, versus, you know, the question is who is more informed, not who, not about someone's experiences, you know. Um, even even though you, he admits that white people are responsible for, 
you know, creating, implementing, establishing the system of racism and white supremacy, uh, non-white people are still more informed about that. I mean, that is, um, I think, deliberately trying to treat black people like an I- idiot, uh, like idiots, honestly. Um, but that it doesn't make any sense. And I think the the no- the idea, or a lot, what a lot of white people tend to do is say, you know, white people are deliberately ignorant or willfully ignorant. I think that's an oxymoron. I don't. I don't think. I don't think those two words can can go together. You can, how how can you be deliberate and ignorant at the same time? Um, so that that was that was an interesting conversation. Those those seem to be all my thoughts on on the discussion tonight. Uh, thank you for taking my question. Thank you for the program. Much obliged, sir. Uh, now that's one too in terms of context. I don't hear that phrasing used in any other context except with regards to white people and their willful manufactured ignorance. Nobody else in any other setting do I hear talked about so-called willful deliberately. What is that even? I just don't hear. I don't even use that phrase. Deliberate ignorance. Like what is that? Just when you lie. You could just make up all kinds of things. And like I said, the reluctance, seeing that as a, he said, that's what he does with his research. Me too. Dr. Welsing encourages that explicitly in the ISIS papers. Pattern recognition. All of the whites that we've had racked up who have all kinds of credentials. They have published books, published articles. They teach classes that are explicitly about racism. And then you get, well, you're in, even have given us this is how racism works in France and how it's a little bit different and blah blah blah. Oh, so you're informed about racism? Oh, 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 oh now I, I wouldn't say that. I'm still learning, my black brother. That right there should really stand out as suspicious. I don't see that sort of humility from whites in really any other context. It's only when you start to hey, I'm. I'm trying to to study this racism thing. Seriously, I'm trying to study what it means to be white. Even you, sir, ma'am. Anywho, always great to ask white people, who is refining all of this here? But they're still willfully ignorant and naive and, you know. Anywho, um... Anything else? Make sure to get in. Charles Mills. That is so key. Like, just watch for that. They'll quote. Sometimes they will pick a a non-white person who's still alive, but frequently it will be a non-white person who has transitioned on, and they'll pick out something that they said that is in error. Bell hooks. France Fanon. Charles Mills. James James Baldwin is such a popular one. James Baldwin. Uh, But they'll pick out something that they said in maybe even Minister Malcolm X from time to time. It's not difficult to locate a non-white person saying something in error about white supremacy racism. Gus T. included. Let's see. Did I get everything? (laughs) Depo baby. Wrote that one down. Wished I had got that in. He said he was a uh, academic or college professorial nepo 
baby and I was going to ask him what that meant because I was thinking nepo like nepotism uh, because he said his dad was a college professor and what have you it's like oh okay did you you got into all of this you know your dad knows a bunch of professors and other university folks so he got you a job and having like oh that is power incident and I mean dang like if you come from a whole family of university scholars and professors you are very informed about racism generational intelligence yes grow up in a household with lots of books probably grown up where if it's been my experience where hey you get perks so if your dad is a professor at that university your spouse and offspring you know they might get certain access to that campus events and resources and all kinds of goodies like wow that is you know not ignorant power anywho much obliged. He even writes, he mentioned uh, Jim Brown. He even included in this report about Ken Norton since we got in Muhammad Ali, one of his toughest foes. Ken Norton in the movie Mandingo sexualized black male. Came out in the same time period, 1970s. Reading more important than watching television. We will be here Thursday at minimum for the book club the Negroes with kinky hair in Brazilian soccer almost done it now we get to Pele the payoff for the people if you didn't pay attention wow it has been amazing World War II Nazis kinky hair racial classification confusion I've learned so much uh, just reading the text and now we're almost done but now we get to Pele his part of the uh, text, which is one of the reasons we want to read all of this, some of the same issues that we talked about today, right there in this book, white people being fury, you've got these niggers like for real black, crystal black niggers out here playing soccer, oh my gosh, for there it's not quarterback it's goalie, gotta be a white man gotta be smart, just have these dark people back there messing up, that's important, he brings to be goalie Thursday 8pm Eastern, 5pm Pacific so timely with today we were one week removed from the basketball championship I guess it would have been nice if we could have been a little bit closer for that but I honestly didn't know that was going to become such a big deal it was, I saw you know all the immediate kind of social media stuff Sunday but then when the vice president or Jill Biden excuse me Dr. Jill Biden first lady when she got involved and all this and spiraled then Angel Reese said she wasn't going to the White House after they did it like whoo I did not anticipate that it was going to carry over and all the rest of it either way Hopefully we got something constructive out of all this beyond just white ball games. Dr. Welsing hopefully did something proud. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need our brain computers. We are still learning. Got to solve this problem. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy even Clarence Justice Clarence Thomas we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate black self-respect each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling 
Neely Fuller Jr. He said many people have been harmed. Many people are to blame. The people who are most to blame. Not Clarence Thomas. Not Jesse Jackson. Not Al Sharpton. Individuals classified as white. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. The Masters. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. You're a victim. Shut I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh.